Avatar, The Last Airbender, The Shadow of Kyoshi, by F.C. Yi, with Michael Dante DiMartino. This book is read by Nancy Wu. Author's Note So I tell this story a lot at panels and interviews, but I want to preserve it for posterity here. During a time when I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and before I had ever written a novel, I thought about becoming a TV writer. To become a TV writer, you have to demonstrate your skills by writing a spec script, an episode of a currently running show, essentially fan fiction. I had just watched Book 2, Earth, of the original Atla, so I wrote a spec script where Sokka feels bad about not being a bender and finds a cool master to train him. In my spec script, he was going to learn to fight with Wing Chun and Gadishi. In retrospect, the result would have been a lot like Asami. From these creative beginnings, I would never have dreamed that in the future, I'd be establishing canon for the Avatar world. In the truest sense, I have you, the fans, to thank for this opportunity. You've kept your love for this universe burning brightly for more than a decade, and the most I could ever hope for as a fellow fan and author is to add to your enjoyment. These books are dedicated to you. Thank you all so much. Sincerely, FCE. Prologue Boy! Yoon clawed at his own neck until he drew blood. The feeling of slime and teeth lingered on his skin. Boy, stop your sniveling. He remembered Jenju lighting the incense. He remembered the sticky sweet smell and the deadness it created in his limbs. Sting jelly venom, his training told him. He'd only just started his doses with Sifu Amok. Yoon blinked and tried to make sense of his surroundings. His hands clawed into wet, porous moss when it should have been the dust of the mining town under his fingernails. He was in a mangrove forest. The sky was the color of acid. He crawled around, the juices of a swamp sucking at his knees. The trunks of the leafless trees twisted and gnarled as high as hills, barely lighter in color than silhouettes. Screened by the loose weave of branches, a great glowing eye stared at him. It was the eye that had spoken. The eye that told him he wasn't the... A pain, terrible and familiar, racked his stomach and folded him in two. His forearms splashed into the swamp water. The landscape around him began to shake, not from earth bending, but from something raw and more uncontrollable. He wasn't. End of sentence. He was nothing. The shallow water danced, raindrops on a drum, spiking into geysers. The shoreline swayed, rattling the trees, bucking and clashing them together like the antlers of beasts locked in combat. Yoon dashed his head against the ground in a frenzied corruption of a student bowing to their master. Jinju. His entire mind was a screamed name, a single screeching tone on a broken flute. His skull thudded against the brackish mud. Jenju. 
Stop it, you miserable little brat. The eye roared. Despite its anger, it shrank back from him, afraid of his throes of agony. The ground squeezed and fluttered, the heartbeat of a man falling to his death, pounding louder and louder before the final impact. Yoon wanted it to stop. He wanted the anguish to end. It hurt so much to see everything he'd worked for shredded to sparks and dust. It was destroying him from the inside. So let it out. The whisper came to him in his own voice, not the eyes, not Jenju's. Put the pain outside. Put it somewhere else, on someone else. The rip started at his feet, a pinprick in overstretched silk. The tear birthed itself in the water and raced into the banks of the earth like lightning cracking the sky. The ground split apart, releasing all its quaking tension in one swift cataclysmic burst. And then, stillness. Yoon could breathe again. He could see. The trembling had worn itself out, spent its energy in the creation of a long lesion in the ground, an unnatural wound upon the landscape. Swamp water poured into the injury, masking a depth he knew he shouldn't explore. Things were so much clearer when there was relief. Yoon used this moment of respite to look around. The musty grove resembled no forest he'd ever seen. The dim light in the sky came from no discernible sun. This place was a hazy reflection of a real landscape, painted with ink that had been thinned too much. I'm in the spirit world. He backed away from the ravine that lay before him, not wanting to be dragged in by the force of the water's flow. Turning around, he pulled himself to drier footing, using the exposed roots of a leathery tree. The air smelled like sulfur and rot. Master Kelsung had told him about the spirit world. It was supposed to be a beautiful, wild place, full of creatures beyond imagining. The realm of the spirits was a mirror held up to its visitors, a reflection of your emotions, a reality that shaped around your own spirit's intangible projection. Yoon flexed his fingers, finding them as solid as they could be. He wondered if the gentle monk had ever explored a nightmarish bog like this one. They'd never talked about what happened if you entered the spirit world while you were still in your body. The rustle of branches gave him a start and reminded him he wasn't alone. The eye. It watched carefully from the darkness of the forest, circling him on translucent appendages studded with what he knew to be human teeth. He'd felt its bite back in the mountains when it had sampled his blood. A pulsing panic rushed through the chambers of his heart. You knew he was on borrowed time. He tried to remember what Jenju had called the spirit. Father, glowworm? 
The eye suddenly rushed closer, socketing itself in the gap between two nearby trees. Yoon shrieked and fell backward on his elbows. He'd made a mistake. A crucial, invisible barrier had been broken by saying the name aloud, and now he was more connected and vulnerable to it than ever. I call myself that, the spirit said. Father Glowworm's pupil darted around unnervingly, the iris squeezing narrower. Its gaze had the heft of a probing tongue. Now, child, I believe you owe me your name. Like a fool, Yoon had fallen into the role of the bumpkin from cautionary Earth Kingdom folk tales. The poor field hand or woodcutter who fell under a curse or was simply eaten. He could only think of how he'd be consumed, rasped into pulp, maybe, and absorbed into the slime. My name is Yoon. His palms were slick with fear. In some of those tales, the stupid boy survived through sheer pluck. Yoon was already prey. His only chance was to become interesting prey. I, I. His poise was failing him. His slickness under pressure that had impressed the Fire Lord and the Earth King, the chieftains of the water tribes and head abbots of the air temples alike, was nowhere to be found. Maybe Avatar Yun had the confidence to talk his way out of this, but no such person existed anymore. Father Glowworm shifted in the trees, and Yoon knew he was going to die if he didn't say something quick. His mind leaped back to the moments in his past when his fate was cradled in someone else's hands. I wish to submit myself for consideration as your student, he yelped. Was there a way for a single eye to look surprised? The forest was silent except for the rush of falling water. I kneel before you as a humble spiritual traveler seeking answers, Yun said. He shifted around so his posture matched his words. Please teach me the ways of the spirit world, I beseech you. Father Glowworm burst into laughter. It had no lids to narrow, but its sphere tilted upward in the universal direction of amusement. Boy, do you think this is a game? Everything is a game, Yoon thought, trying to still his shaking. I will draw this one out as far as I can. I will survive a turn longer. There was no more Avatar Yoon. He would have to be Yoon the Swindler again. I can hardly be faulted for wanting to ask questions of a spirit wiser than the best of humanity. When in doubt, flatter the mark. The Earth Kingdom's finest sages couldn't identify the Avatar for 16 years, and yet you did it in a matter of seconds. Hmm. You don't fight the kind of battle Kuruk and I did, and not be able to recognize your opponent's spirit. I could already feel Genju bringing his reincarnation closer to one of my tunnels. 
It had to be one of you children. Yoon's ears perked at the word tunnels. You have routes to the human world? More than one? Father Glowworm laughed again. I know what you're doing, it sneered. And it doesn't impress me. Yes, I can create passages to the human realm. No, you will not trick or convince me into sending you back. You're not the bridge between spirits and humans, boy. You're the stone that needed to be pitched away by the sculptor. The impurity in the ore. I've tasted your blood, and you're nothing. You're not even worth this conversation. The eye crept closer. I can tell how upset you are by the truth, it said in a soothing, sweet tone. Don't be. Who needs avatarhood? You will find your own use and your own immortality. Once I strengthen myself on your blood, part of your essence will exist within me forever. The problem with any game was that eventually the opponent decided to stop playing. Father Glowworm suddenly rushed Yoon, spiraling through the forest, tendrils of slime grasping and parting the trees like the beads of a curtain. Now be grateful, the spirit roared, for we are about to become one. Unfinished Business Brother Poe once told Kuji the nickname for the Tao sword was All Man's Courage. Hold the sturdy chopping blade that let you hack away at a foe with abandon, and you'd feel braver immediately. Kuji did not feel braver as he gripped the haft of his Tao with clammy palms and watched the door. And his blade did not feel very sturdy. It was a rusted, chipped specimen that seemed like it would shatter if he waved it in the air too vigorously. As the most junior member of the Triad of the Golden Wing, he'd had to wait at the back of the line as weapons were passed out in turn. This sword had come from the bottom of the crate. Now you're a real soldier, eh? Someone had joked at the time. Not like the rest of us hatchet men. Brother Poe stood by the doorway, holding his small axe, the favored weapon of most of the triad's seasoned fighters. He looked calm on the outside, but Kuji could see his throat bobbing up and down repeatedly as he swallowed, the same way it did when he was going for a big money play in Pai Show. If Kuji had confidence in anything for protection, it was in his gang's turf. Long Kao City Block was practically a fortress. On the surface, Long Kao looked no different than its neighboring districts of Ba Sing Se's lower ring. The visible portion on the block rose a haphazard couple of stories into the air like a budding mushroom in defiance of gravity and sound architecture. But it was an open secret that the complex extended illegally into the ground, layer by layer, far below the surface. 
Each level had been dug out below the previous one, without a solid plan or understanding of safety, shored up by using only improvised supports of wood scrap, mud brick, bits of rusty scavenged metal. And yet, Long Kao held solid without caving in, possibly with the aid of the spirits. The inside of the block was a knot of twists and turns, staircases and empty shafts. Hives of squalid apartments squeezed the available pathways into narrow choke points. Long Kao was littered with natural traps like the room where Kuji and Po waited, which was one of the reasons why lawmen never went inside the city block. Until now. The boss had gotten a tip that the Golden Wing's stronghold was going to be hit this very day. Every brother was to take up positions until the threat was gone. Kuji didn't know what kind of enemy could get his elders so riled up. By his guess, it would have taken more lawmen than the lower ring possessed in order to lay siege to Long Kao. Regardless, the plan was sound. Anyone trying to make it to the lower floors would have to file through a narrow bottleneck that ran by this room. Kuji and Ning could get the drop on an intruder two on one. And it was unlikely they'd see action, Kuji reminded himself. The level above was being prowled by throat cutter Gong, the boss's best assassin. Gong could stalk and kill a mongoose lizard in its own jungle lair. The number of heads he'd taken could have filled a hay barn. A crash came from one floor up. There was no sound of a voice accompanying it. The little apartment began to feel less their turf to hold, and more a box confining them like animals in a crate. Poe gestured with his hatchet. We'll hear them coming down the stairs, he whispered. That's when we strike. Kuji tilted his ear in that direction. He was so desperate to hear any approaching signal that he lost his balance and stumbled. Poe rolled his eyes. Too loud, he hissed. As if to prove his point, someone flew through the doorway, snapping the hinges and collided with Kuji. He shrieked and flailed with his dao, but at best managed to smack the person in the head with his pommel. Poe grabbed the attacker and raised his hatchet to strike, but checked his swing at the last second. It was throat cutter Gong, unconscious and bleeding. His wrists bent the wrong way, and his ankles were bound with his own garrot wire. Brother Gong, Poe shouted, forgetting his own lesson in stealth. What happened? From the wall opposite the hallway they were supposed to be focusing on, a pair of gauntleted arms burst through the brick. They wrapped around Poe's neck from behind in a chokehold, cutting off his words. Kuji saw his elder's eyes go white with terror before Poe was pulled out of the room straight through the wall. Kuji stared at the emptiness in stupefied disbelief. Poe was a big man, and in a blink, he'd been taken like a raven eagle's prey. The hole he disappeared through revealed only darkness. Outside, the floorboards creaked from the weight of a person walking, as if complete silence were a cloak the enemy could wear and discard at will. The treading of heavy boots came closer and closer. The doorway filled, blacking out the faint light from the hall, and a tall, incredibly tall figure stepped inside.
A thin line of blood trickled from its throat, as if it had been beheaded and glued back together. A dress of green silk billowed underneath the wound. Its face was a white mask, and its eyes were monstrous streaks of red. Trembling, Kuji raised his blade. He moved so slowly it felt like he was swimming through mud. The creature watched him swing his sword, its eyes on the metal, and somehow he knew it was fully capable of putting a stop to the action, if it cared to. The edge of the dao bit into his opponent's shoulder. There was a snapping noise, and a sudden pain lashed his cheek. The sword had broken, the top half bouncing back in Kuji's face. It was a spirit, it had to be. It was a spirit that could pass through walls, a ghost that could float over floors, a beast impervious to blades. Kuji dropped the handle of the useless sword. His mother had told him once that invoking the Avatar could safeguard him from evil. He'd known as a child she was making up stories, but that didn't mean he couldn't decide to believe them right now. Right now, he believed harder than he believed anything in his life. The Avatar protect me, he whispered while he could still speak. He fell on his behind and scrambled to the corner of the room, blanketed completely by the spirit's long shadow. Yang Chen, protect me. The spirit woman followed him and lowered her red and white face to his. A human would have passed some kind of judgment on Kuji as he cowered like this. The cold disregard in her eyes was worse than any pity or sadistic amusement. Yang Chen isn't here right now, she said in a rich, commanding voice that would have been beautiful had she not held such clear indifference for his life. I am. Kuji sobbed as a large, powerful hand gripped him by the chin with thumb and forefinger. It was gentle, but gave the assurance that she could rip his jaw clean off his head if she so desired. The woman tilted his face upward. Now tell me where I can find your boss. Kyoshi's neck itched terribly. The garrote had been coated in ground glass, and though she'd managed to avoid getting cut too deeply, sharp little fragments still vexed her skin. It served her right for being so sloppy. The gang's wire man had been stealthy, but not at the level of the company she used to keep in her Daofei days. Speaking of which, she'd taken a risk by not incapacitating the boy like she'd done his elders. But he'd reminded her of Lek. The way his stupid baby face tried to arrange itself in a mask of hardness, his obvious need for the approval of his sworn elder brothers his sheer idiotic bravery. He was too young to be running with a gang in the slums of Ba Sing Se. No more exceptions for today, she told herself as she stepped over rusting junk and debris. She was still in the habit of labeling anyone roughly her age as boys and girls, and the language made her inclined toward softness, which was dangerous. Certainly no one would show Kiyoshi grace because she was only nearing 18. 
The Avatar did not have the luxury of being a child. She pushed through a hallway barely wider than she was. Only the slightest cracks of illumination came through the walls. Glowing crystals were expensive, and candles were a fire risk, making light a premium in Longkau. Networks of pipes dripped above her, pattering on the gilded headdress she wore, despite the cramped environment. She'd learned to account for the height it added, and having to stoop had been a fact of her life since childhood. The smell of human density wafted through the corridors, a concoction of sweat and drying paint. She could only imagine what the lower levels offered the nose. The city block packed more people into its limits than any other in the lower ring, and not all of its residents were criminals. Longkau was a haven for the very poor. People with nowhere else to go squatted here and applied their industries, eking out livings as garbage pickers, fell off the wagon marketeers, unlicensed doctors, dodgy snack vendors, and the like. They were ordinary Earth Kingdom citizens, trying to get by on the margins of the law. Her folk, essentially. The shadowed confines of the city block were also home to a more violent sort, evolving gangs of the lower ring, whose memberships were swelling from the influx of Daofei. Bandits who could no longer hold territory in the countryside were fleeing for the cover of Ba Sing Se and other large cities, blending in with the populace, hiding among the same refuge-seeking citizens they'd brutalized in years past. Those were not Kyoshi's folk. In fact, many of them were running from her. But given it was just as likely for an apartment to be holding scared residents who had nothing to do with her quarry, Kyoshi was keeping her movements in check. Garden variety earthbending that ripped up huge chunks of the surroundings would cause a dangerous collapse and harm innocence. The interior opened into a small market area. She passed a room full of barrels leaking bright ink over the floor, a home dyeing operation, and an empty butcher stall clouded with buzzing ant flies. Genju's study had contained his notes on the political and economic situation of Ba Sing Se, and the small reference to the city block noted how enterprising its residents were. Curiously, it also mentioned that the land it was built on held some value due to its prominent location in the lower ring. Merchants in the middle ring had tried to purchase the block in the past and evict the residents, but the dangers of the gangs had always made such projects fail. Kyoshi paused near a vat of spoiled mango pomace. This was her spot. She bent an assortment of rock debris into a small circle and stood on it. She crossed her arms over her chest to make the smallest cross-section possible. Before she went, though, she noticed a tiny object in the corner. It was a toy. A doll made of rags scavenged from a fine lady's dress. Someone in the block had gone through great effort to sew a doll made of fabric from the upper ring for their child. Kyoshi stared at it until she blinked, remembering why she was here. She stamped down with her foot. 
Her little platform of earth, held together by her bending, turned as hard as the point of an auger. It burst through the clay tiles and rotting struts of wood, dropping her fast enough to make her guts lurch. She plunged through the floor and into the next level down before doing it again and again. Genju's tactical manuals noted that in enclosed fights, most casualties happened at doorways and stairs. Kiyoshi had decided to skip over those parts of the building and bore her own passage. She counted 14 stories, more than she'd estimated, until she came crashing through the ceiling of a room that was solid earth underneath, the bottom of Longkau. Kiyoshi stepped off her platform, dust and crumbs of masonry cascading off her arms, and looked around. There were no walls in here, only supporting columns that propped up the great weight of the levels above. So the city block has a ballroom, she thought wryly. The empty expanse was similar to the entertaining halls of wealthy nobles like Lu Bei Fong. There was a space like this in the Avatar's mansion in Yokoya. She could see all the way to the far end, since the walls held lumps of glowing crystal, as if the light for the entire building had been hoarded for this room. There was a desk, a wooden island in the emptiness. And behind the desk was a man who hadn't given up his pretensions since Kiyoshi had last seen him. Hello, Uncle Mock, Kiyoshi said. It's been a while, hasn't it? Mock, the former second-in-command of the Yellowneck Daofei, goggled his eyes in surprise. Kiyoshi was like a curse he couldn't shake. You, he fumed, shrinking slightly behind the furniture, as if it could protect him. What are you doing here? I heard rumors about a new boss settling into Longkau, and thought he sounded very familiar. So I came to investigate. I heard this group is calling itself a triangle now. Do I have that right? Something with three sides? Kyoshi found it hard to keep track. The Daofei who were funneling into the cities brought their grandiose customs of secrecy and tradition into the realm of urban petty crimes. The triad of the Golden Wing, he yelled, infuriated by her disinterest in his rituals. But Kiyoshi was long past caring about the feelings of men like Mok. He could throw whatever tantrum he desired. The drumming of feet grew louder. The men Kiyoshi had bypassed on the middle floors came filing into the room, surrounding her. They brandished axes and cleavers and daggers. Mok's men had preferred outlandish weapons when they still roamed the countryside, but here in the city, they'd abandoned the nine ring swords and meteor hammers for simpler arms that could be hidden in a crowd. Bolstered by more than two dozen men, Mock turned calmer. Well, girl, what is it you want? Besides checking in on your elders. I want you all to surrender your weapons, vacate the premises, and march yourselves to a magistrate's courthouse for judgment. The nearest one is seven blocks from here. Several of the hatchet men burst out laughing. The corner of Mock's mouth turned upward. Kyoshi might be the avatar, but she was vastly outnumbered and trapped in an enclosed space. 
We refuse, he said with an exaggerated roll of his hand. All right, then. In that case, I only have one question. Kyoshi cast her gaze around the room. Are you sure this is all of you? The triad members glanced at each other. Mock's face swelled with rage, reddening like a berry in the sun. It wasn't insolence so much as pragmatism, her instinct for tidiness and efficiency rising to the surface. If not, I can wait until everyone arrives, Kyoshi said. I don't want to have to go back and check each floor. Tear her apart, Mock screamed. The hatchet men charged from all directions. Kyoshi drew one of her fans. Two would have been a bit much. Kyoshi stepped over the groaning bodies. When one of the triad members was too still, she nudged him with her boot until she saw signs of breathing. Mock's robe had blown off in the scuffle. He managed to budge the chair he was sitting on a few inches in flight before Kiyoshi put her hand on his shoulder, pressing him back into his seat. No need to get up yet, uncle, she said. Past enmity or not, he was still older than her. Mock roiled with an anger and fear that Kiyoshi could feel through her grip. So you're going to murder me in cold blood like you did Shu? May you be ripped apart by thunderbolts and many knives for slaying your sworn brothers. Kyoshi found herself bothered, more than she should have been, by Mok calling her a murderer. She and Xu Ping An had agreed to a duel, and the man immediately tried to kill her. Once she'd gained the upper hand, she'd given him a chance to yield. The former leader of the Yellownecks had amply demonstrated he was beyond saving. And yet, during sleepless nights, she thought about Shu. The vile man infected her thoughts when she could have been dreaming of those she loved. She thought about Shu a great deal, his weight in her hands, and how, at the end of their fight, she'd decided. Kiyoshi cleared her head. Anything goes on the lay tie, she said. Justifying the act out loud was bitter, ineffective medicine that she forced herself to swallow anyway. I'm not going to kill you. You and your men got a foothold inside the walls rather quickly for a gang of countryside bandits who spent most of their history bullying farmers. You have a contact in bossing, say, helping you, and I want to know who it is. Mock stiffened with purpose. True Daofei never surrendered information to the authorities, even if it would benefit them. The day I squeal to you, girl, is the day I- ah! Kyoshi reminded him that times had changed since they first met with a crushing squeeze of her fingers. She dented the nerves of his arm until the terms of their new relationship sunk in. It was someone from the middle ring, Mock said once he stopped squealing in pain. We used go-betweens. I don't know their name. Kyoshi let go and took a step back. She'd been expecting him to name a lower ring criminal, a local who'd maybe sworn brotherhood to him in the past. 
The middle ring was the domain of merchants and academics. Something didn't add up here. Mock clutched his shoulder and scrambled away from the desk. Why? He shouted at a door behind him. Now! In her distraction, Kiyoshi had forgotten the third leading brother of the former Yellow Necks. The door burst open in an ambush before Kiyoshi could react. Brother Y sprung out, knife raised, a snarl on his lips. He wasn't wearing the leather strap that covered his severed nose, and without it, his gaunt face had a skull-like appearance. Y had been a fast, vicious man back in his yellow neck days, and he still was. But when he saw the intruder was Kyoshi, dressed in her full makeup and regalia, he gasped and nearly halted in midair. Y was one of the few witnesses who'd seen her in the Avatar state, and the experience had overawed the spiritual man. He stepped back to give her space, nearly knocking his brother over in his haste, and dropped to his knees. The knife that had been aimed at Kiyoshi a second before, he placed at her feet like an offering. Oh, come on, Mock screamed as Y bowed his head to the ground and prostrated himself before the Avatar. Kiyoshi stepped out of the city block into the street. The day had gotten brighter and hotter. A squad of peace officers, uniformed guardsmen of Ba Sing Se, waited for her, lining in wings to the left and right of the exit. The junior men who'd never seen the Avatar before stared at Kiyoshi as she emerged from the darkness. One of them dropped his truncheon and fumbled to pick it up. Kiyoshi walked past the rank-and-file guardsmen, ignoring the whispers and barely acknowledging the bows, until she reached Captain Lee by the door. He was a sallow-faced man who'd been on the job too long, his retirement delayed by gambling debts. The cordon is set, he said to Kiyoshi in a pipe smoker's wheeze. No trouble out here so far. Most of the lower ring citizens went about their business, ignoring the presence of the law. But Kiyoshi noticed a few people watching with fake disinterest, probably spotters for other unsavory organizations. Working with Captain Lee meant flirting with a violation of Kiyoshi's Daofei oaths. She'd sworn to her elder sister Karima, under a blade held by her elder brother Wong, never to become a lackey of the law. But Lee had been her tool, her informant, not the other way around. He'd provided her the intelligence she needed to close her unfinished business with Mock, and numbers for cleanup once she was done. Is the building safe? Lee asked, tilting his cap to dab at his forehead with his cuff. The triad members are down and ready to be extricated, Kyoshi said. You should summon a doctor. I'll get right on that, Lee replied in a dull tone that let Kyoshi know how seriously he took the suggestion. He put his fingers to his lips and whistled. All right, boys, get the vermin out of there. The guardsmen hustled into the city block, free to move fast after Kyoshi had swept the twists and nooks of danger. She waited patiently to see the results of her work. The triad of the Golden Wing 
needed to be counted and cataloged in the light of day. Being hauled away like dry goods would cause their mystique to blow away in the wind. Hopefully. She heard loud voices and the sound of a struggle emerging from the darkness of Longkau. Two officers dragged out a man who hadn't been among the triads who'd attacked her. He was dressed poorly, but a pair of glasses fell from his head. He had to have been a jeweler or a tailor to have invested in such an expensive device. A boot crushed the glasses into the dust before she could say anything. With mounting horror, Kiyoshi watched another set of officers come out, hustling a woman by the back of her neck. She held a wailing child in her arms. The man with bad vision heard the cries and began thrashing harder in the guard's grasp. These weren't triad members. They were one of the poor families who lived in the city block. What are your men doing? Kyoshi shouted at Lee. He looked confused at her question. Getting rid of the bad element. Certain folks have been waiting to demolish this eyesore for a long time. He turned hesitant, a haggler afraid to part with too much of his money. Do you want a cut? If you do, you have to talk to my man in the middle ring. The middle ring. In a flash, she understood. Someone with big lucrative plans for Long Kao wanted the residents scrubbed from the city block, but needed an excuse to do it. They'd let the triads in first to get the law and the avatar involved, and then bribed Captain Lee to clear out innocent and criminal folk alike. Stop this, Kyoshi said. Stop this right now. Ayah, Lee lamented without a speck of sincerity. I'm sorry, Avatar, but I'm acting within the confines of my duty. Rightfully, I can vacate these premises of criminals as necessary. Mama, it was the little girl sobbing that set Kiyoshi over the edge. Papa. Kiyoshi drew her fans and snapped them open. She raised clumps of earth from below the dusty top layer, where the clay was still moist and malleable. Fist-sized clods shot forth, slamming over the mouths and noses of Lee and his officers, clamping over their skin like muzzles. The guards let go of the family and clawed at their faces, but Kiyoshi's earthbending was too strong to be resisted. Lee sank to his knees, his eyes goggling out. They had time before they would suffocate to death. Kiyoshi put back her fans and slowly went to each guard in turn, yanking off their headbands one by one, checking the square metal seals of the Earth King fastened to the cloth. The badges of every official in Ba Sing Se had identification numbers engraved on them, a testament to the city's massive bureaucracy. These men, despite the shrinking supply of air to their brains, could understand the gesture of her taking their headbands and tucking them into her robes for safekeeping. One visit to an administration hall, and she could learn their identities. She could find them later. Most residents of Ba Sing Se had heard the rumors. They'd heard stories of what Avatar Kyoshi was and what she did to people. Kyoshi saved Lee for last. He'd turned purple in the time she'd taken to make the rounds. 
After snatching his headband from under his cap, she let the clay fall from his mouth and the others at the same time. Lee's squad dropped to the ground, gasping for breath. The captain landed on his side, and his inhalation rattled like dice in a cup. She leaned over, but before she could say anything, Lee threw a name at her, hoping to buy clemency. He really had no backbone. His name is War. The man paying me is Minister War. Kiyoshi needed to shut her eyes so her frustration wouldn't leak out. There were probably a dozen minister wars in Ba Sing Se. The name alone was meaningless to her. The city was too big. The Earth Kingdom was too big. She couldn't keep up with the corruption leaking from its holes. She gathered her breath. Here is what's going to happen, Captain, she said as calmly as she could. You are going to clear the block of the triads, and no one else. Then you are going to find paper and brush. You will write me a full confession detailing this war person and every bribe you took from him. Every stroke of it, the truth. Do you hear me, Captain Lee? I will check. I want you to pour your very spirit into this confession. He nodded. Kiyoshi straightened up to see the woman and her daughter looking at her with wide, frightened eyes. She started to approach them, wanting to ask if they were hurt. Don't touch them! The man who'd lost his glasses threw himself between Kiyoshi and his family. With his near blindness, he wouldn't have seen her trying to help. Or maybe he had, and decided she was a danger to his wife and child anyway. Farther away, around the edges of the cordon, more bystanders had gathered. They whispered to each other, the seeds of fresh rumors taking root in the soil. The Avatar had not only ripped apart the occupants of Longkau, but she'd turned her insatiable wrath upon the officers of the Earth King's justice as well. The stares of the ordinary citizens and the terrified family made Kyoshi's skin prickle with a feeling that corrupt men like Lee or Mok could never force on her. Shame. Shame for what she'd done. Shame for what she was. Her makeup covered the flush in her cheeks and camouflaged the furrow in her brow. She gave Lee one last meaningful tap and then walked away from Longkau, as slowly as she'd arrived. An impassive statue heading back to the altar that gave it life. But really, underneath her paint, she was fleeing the scene of her crime. Her heart threatening to pound her chest into dust. The Invitation People who complained about how long it took to travel across Ba Sing Se were usually factoring in the congestion. That wasn't a problem for Kyoshi. Crowds tended to part out of her way, like grass before the breeze. She had another shortcut to exploit as well. It was possible to waterbend a makeshift raft upstream along the drainage canals running from the upper ring all the way out to the agrarian zone for irrigation. It was extremely fast, 
if you could stand the smell. She reached the middle ring by the evening. Despite the orderly layout and numbered addresses, she struggled to find her direction in the uniformity of the white painted houses and green tiled roofs. She took paths leading her over peaceful bridges that spanned gently flowing canals and along tea shops redolent with jasmine blossoms and trees shedding their pale pink petals over the sidewalks. As a child living in the gutters of Yokoya, Kiyoshi used to imagine a paradise much like the middle ring. Clean, quiet, and food at hand anywhere you looked. Store owners sweeping their floors would look up in surprise at her, but soon returned to their business. She passed a gaggle of dark-robed students that stared and elbowed each other to get a glimpse, but didn't flee her gaze. People who were comfortable with their station in life tended to have less fear. They couldn't imagine danger in any form visiting their doorstep. Kiyoshi slipped out of sight into a darkened side street. She opened an unmarked door with a key she kept in her sash. The hallway she entered was as full of twists and stairs as Longkau, but much cleaner. It ended with a passageway into a plain second-story apartment, furnished only with a bed and a desk. This room was one of several properties around the Four Nations that Genju had bequeathed her and it served as a safe room where she could sleep overnight when she didn't want to announce her official presence with the Earth King's staff. She unbuckled her bracers and peeled them off, tossing them on the bed as she crossed the floor. She sank into the chair and dumped the pilfered headbands on the desk, the badges clattering over the surface like gambling winnings. She was more careful removing her headdress. A breeze rustled her freed hair, coming from the window that gave her an expansive sunset view of the lower ring in all its vastness and poverty. The brown shacks and shanties stretching over the land like leather, drying in the sun. It was an unusual layout for the apartment. Many middle ring houses did not have views that faced the lower ring. The merchants and financiers who lived in this district paid so they didn't have to look at unpleasantness. Her fingers moved on their own, organizing the badges into neat stacks. A dull ache of exhaustion settled into her head. Today had added another complication to the pile. She would need to plan another visit to Longkau to make sure the residents were safe within their homes. And she'd have to follow up on Lee's information, or else the captain and his backers would know they could simply wait until the Avatar had passed like a cloud overhead for them to resume their corrupt activities. She knew it was a losing battle. In the grand scheme of things, singling out one dirty lawman in Bossing Say would have as much effect as pulling a raindrop out of the ocean. Unless... Unless she made an example of Lee and whoever bribed him. She could hurt them so badly that word would spread about what happens when the Avatar catches you exploiting the defenseless for your own gain. It would be quick, it would be efficient, it would be brutal. Genji would have approved. Kyoshi slammed her hands against the desk, toppling the badges. 
she'd slipped yet again into the mindset of her deceased benefactor. She'd heard his words in her own voice, the two of them speaking with as much unity as the avatars were supposed to be able to do with their past lives. She opened a drawer and pulled out a hand towel that had been resting in a small bowl of special liniment. Kiyoshi dragged the moistened cloth hard down the side of her face, trying to wipe away the deeper stains along with her makeup. A shudder of revulsion ran up Kiyoshi's back when she thought of how she'd smothered Lee with the exact same technique Genju had once used on her. She should have abhorred it knowing exactly what it felt like to die slowly as your lungs caved in on themselves. In dealing with Lee, she'd slipped as easily into Genju's skin as she had her clothes. The ones that had also been a gift from him. She slammed her fist on the desk again and heard part of the joinery crack. It felt like every step she took as the Avatar was in the wrong direction. Kelsung would never have entertained violence as policy. He would have worked to improve the fortunes of the Longkau and Lower Ring residents so they could push back against triad domination and middle ring exploitation. He would have acted as their voice. That was what Kiyoshi had to do. In essence, it was what Kelsung had done for her. The abandoned child he found in Yokoya. It was the right course of action, and would be the most effective in the long run. It would just take time. A very, very long time. A knock came from outside. Come in, she said. A young man wearing the billowing orange and yellow robes of an air nomad opened the door. Are you all right? Avatar Kyoshi, Monk Jinpa said. I heard a loud noise and, ah! The stack of letters he was holding went flying into the air. Kyoshi whipped her hand around and around in a circle of air bending, corralling the papers with a miniature tornado. Jinpa recovered from his surprise and caught the pile of letters from the bottom of the vortex up, recreating the stack, but with the corners sticking out at all angles. Apologies, Avatar, he said when he'd secured her correspondence once more. I was surprised by your, uh, he gestured at his own face in lieu of pointing rudely at hers. She hadn't finished wiping off the rest of her makeup. She probably looked like a doctor's illustration of a skull with the skin halfway stripped. Kiyoshi grabbed the towel to finish the job. Don't worry about it, she said as she worked the cloth along the corner of her eye, taking care not to get the compound that would dissolve the paint into it. In defiance of her order, Jinpa still looked worried. You're also bleeding from your neck. Yes, right. With her free hand, she opened a fan and aimed the leaf at the garrote wound around her throat. The shards of glass in her skin plucked themselves out under the force of her earth bending, and balled into a floating clump that dropped to the floor when she switched her focus to a nearby pitcher. 
a tiny wriggle of water snaked out of the vessel and wrapped itself around Kiyoshi's neck. It was cool and soothing against the itch of the wound, and she could feel her skin knitting together. Jinpa watched her heal herself, both worried and horrified by the crudeness of her self-administered first aid. Isn't healing water supposed to glow? He asked. I've never managed it. The mansion's libraries in Yokoya were full of extensive tomes about the medical uses of waterbending, but Kiyoshi lacked time and a proper teacher. She'd read through as many of the texts as she could anyway, and the wounds she'd been accumulating as the Avatar gave her plenty of opportunities to practice on herself. She'd made a vow. No matter how limited her knowledge was, or how flawed her technique, she would never again watch someone she cared about slip away in front of her while she did nothing. She tossed the water back in the pitcher and ran a finger over the marks left behind on her neck. At this rate, I'm going to look like Auntie Mui's latest patchwork quilt. She could hide the scar with more makeup or a higher collar. But the mottled, healed burns on her hands, courtesy of Xu Ping An, reminded her she was running out of body parts to injure and cover up. What are the updates? Jinpa took a seat and pulled out one of the many letters addressed to the avatar that he'd already broken the seals on. He was allowed the privilege. During her first visit to the Southern Air Temple as the avatar, he had helped her constantly with planning and communication, to the point where his elders shrugged and officially assigned him to Kiyoshi as her secretary. Without his assistance, she would have been overwhelmed to the point of shutting down. Governor Tay humbly submits a report that Zigan Village has surpassed its former peak population and can now boast of a new school and herbal clinic both of which are free of charge to the poorest townsfolk. Jinpa read aloud. Huh. The Tay families, not known for generosity. I wonder what's gotten into young Sehung recently. What indeed. Tay Sehung had been the first official of the Earth Kingdom to learn Kiyoshi was the Avatar right after she'd decided not to assassinate him during a Daofei raid on his house. After her public revealing, she'd made it clear to Tay that the life debt he owed her still applied, and she'd continued to watch him. Knowing his power didn't make him immune to consequences seemed to have bolstered both his compassion and skill as governor. Good news was hard to come by these days. What's next? she asked Jinpa, hoping for more. His lips pulled to the side. The rest of the letters are audience requests from nobles you've already rejected or ignored. All of them? She eyed the tall stack of papers and frowned. Jinpa shrugged. You reject and ignore a lot of nobles. Earth Kingdom folk are nothing if not persistent. Kiyoshi fought the urge to set the whole pile of correspondence ablaze. She didn't have to read every message to know each one was a demand for the Avatar's favorable judgment on matters of business, politics, and money. She'd learned after the first few times. 
Kiyoshi would accept an innocuous invitation to attend a banquet, preside over a spiritual ceremony, bless a new canal or a bridge. Inevitably, her host, the governor or the largest landowner, oftentimes the same person, would corner her into a side conversation and beg for assistance in material affairs they would never have bothered Kuruk or great Yang Chen with. But Kiyoshi was one of their own, wasn't she? She understood how business was done in the Earth Kingdom. She did. It didn't mean she liked it. Sages who'd vehemently denied her avatar despite Genju's last will and testament, nobles who claimed trickery after watching her twirl water and earth above her head with their own eyes, suddenly became true believers when they thought she could aid them in biting off greater mouthfuls of wealth and power in the endless hierarchies of the Earth Kingdom. The Avatar could settle where a provincial border lay, and which governor got to claim taxes from a rich cropland. The Avatar could speed a trade fleet along its route safely, protecting the lives of the sailors, but ultimately ensuring a massive profit for its merchant backers. Couldn't she? Kiyoshi soon learned to ignore such requests and focus on what she could wreak with her own hands. Those messages can wait, she said. She secretly hoped the stack of correspondence would blow away into dust if she sounded cold and authoritative enough. Jinpa gave her a gentle but chiding look. Avatar, if I may be permitted, you have to participate in high society to some extent. You can't keep putting off the leadership of the Earth Kingdom forever. The Earth Kingdom doesn't have leadership, Kyoshi thought. I helped kill the closest thing to a leader it had. The duties of your role extend beyond being a powerful bender, he went on. You've scrubbed the countryside of the largest bandit groups, and it's impressive you were able to track down this mock person and keep him from hurting more innocent people. But at this point, you're running yourself ragged, simply so you can beat up the same bad men you've already beaten up in the past. Is scraping the bottom of the criminal barrel truly the most good you could do for the Four Nations? Not to mention the risks it poses to your personal safety. It's what I know. And it's the only way I can be sure what I'm doing is right. They'd had this conversation before, many times but Jinpa never grew tired of reminding her. Unlike the other air nomads she'd met, who prized detachment from the world, he was constantly pushing her to engage in a higher level of discourse with the very people who sought to exploit her. He wasn't much older than Kyoshi, slightly on the other side of twenty years, so it was strange when he spoke like a political tutor trying to guide a wayward pupil. At some point, you will have to stand upon a greater stage, Jinpa said. The Avatar creates ripples in the world, whether they mean to or not. Is that a saying among your mysterious friends whom you won't tell me about? She retorted. He merely shrugged at her clumsy attempt to change the subject. That was the other frustrating thing about Jinpa. He wouldn't trade jabs with her like Karima or Wong. 
he showed her too much respect, a problem her old companions never had, even after learning she was the Avatar. She wondered what would happen if the monk ever met the remaining members of the Flying Opera Company. She could imagine Jinpa offering them assistance in escaping the Daofei lifestyle. They probably would have tried to steal his bison. There was only one thing that could get her to talk to the sages. None of the letters mentioned Master Yun? No, unfortunately. He has yet to turn up. Kyoshi exhaled, a long hiss through her teeth. During the period where the world thought Yun was the Avatar, he had focused a great deal of effort on treating with the Earth Kingdom's elite, which meant they were the only people who knew his face. Without a lead from someone who recognized him, finding one man in the entirety of the Earth Kingdom was like looking for a single pebble in a gravel pit. Let's try bumping up the reward again. I don't know if that'll help, Jinpa said. The prominent figures of the Earth Kingdom lost a lot of face as a result of Master Yun's misidentification. If I were them, I wouldn't want him to resurface. I would want to pretend the whole episode never happened. I hear Lu Beifeng forbids anyone in his household, guests included, to speak of Jinju or his disciple. Jinpa had a strange amount of access to political gossip for a simple air nomad, but his observations were usually correct. That blasted Pricklethorn Lu. As Jenju's backer, the Beifeng patriarch was just as guilty in Kiyoshi's eyes for the mistake in identifying the Avatar, and he continued to cast off any further responsibility in the matter. She'd begged Lu Beifeng in person to help her find Yun, expecting the old man to have some semblance of grandfatherly attachment to him. Instead, Lu coldly revealed that the letter Jenju had sent to sages across the Earth Kingdom, proclaiming Kyoshi to be the Avatar, also said Yun was dead. Between Jenju's final words and Kyoshi's confused testimony of the incident in Chinchou, Lu chose to believe what was most convenient for him. As far as he was concerned, the scandal had resolved itself. A victory for neutral Jing. Jinpa gave her a smile out of sympathy. No one's asking you to give up your search for the false avatar, but maybe- Don't call him that. Her rebuke echoed through the room. Thinking about how easily Yun had been abandoned, first by Jenju, then by Lu and the rest of the Earth Kingdom, had set her back on edge. Jinpa avoided her gaze, lowering his head. In the awkward silence, he wiggled his foot nervously. She didn't need bending to feel the tremors through the floor. I'll send word of Master Yun's description to every major passport checking way station I can he said. It's the job of such officials to match names and appearances. They'll be paying closer attention than your average bystander. It was a good idea. Better than any she'd had so far. She felt doubly bad for losing her temper. She needed to apologize for her outburst, needed to stop having such outbursts if she and Jinpa were to ever shorten the distance between them. 
but she was fearful of what lay at the end of friendships. She had been a danger to every companion she ever had. And she still couldn't shake the memories of an air nomad who gave her jokes and warmth and easy smiles. Make it happen, Kyoshi said curtly. Jinpa nodded. Then he paused, as if wondering how to frame his next statement. I didn't open all of today's letters. One of them came by special courier. Half the letters we get are by special courier, Kyoshi scoffed. Grandiose deliveries with envelopes stamped with urgent and for the avatar's eyes only in loud green ink were common tricks the earth sages tried in order to grab her attention. This one is genuinely special. Jinpa reached into his robe and pulled out a message tube he'd been safekeeping. It was red. The sturdy metal tube was end-capped with gilded flames. In the surroundings of the staid but clearly Earth Kingdom furnishings of the apartment, the scroll case looked like an ember in a forest, threatening to catch. An army of wax seals guarded the seams. Jinpa passed it to her with both hands, like an object of reverence. I believe this is from Fire Lord Zoryu himself. Her first direct correspondence from a head of state. Kiyoshi had never met the Fire Lord, nor had he ever written her before. The only contact she'd had with the Fire Nation government was the envoy who'd visited her in Yokoya soon after the news broke of her avatarhood. The sharply dressed minister had watched her raise a modicum of all four elements, nodding to himself as each one was checked off in turn. He'd saluted Kiyoshi, politely stayed for dinner, and then left for his homeland the next morning to report the new state of affairs. She remembered appreciating the lack of grief the foreign delegate gave her, in comparison to her own countrymen. Breaking the seals and opening the case felt like damaging a historical artifact. Kiyoshi kept as much of the wax's original shape as she could, and unfurled the scroll inside. The writing was direct and to the point, devoid of the flourishes Earth Kingdom officials thought were necessary to curry favor with her. Lord Zoryu needed the Avatar's assistance on a matter of national importance. If she would come visit the royal palace as his honored guest to celebrate the upcoming festival of Sito, a significant holiday in the Fire Islands, he could explain further in person. What does it say? Jinpa asked. It's an invitation to visit the Fire Nation. A debut on the world stage. She swallowed the nervousness that had suddenly clumped in her throat. Jinpa saw her hesitation and clasped his hands together, beseeching. This is exactly what I'm talking about, Avatar. The four nations aren't going to let you remain out of the public eye forever. Please don't tell me you'd snub the Fire Lord, of all people. Kiyoshi molded over. She doubted the ruler of the Fire Nation would waste her time with a frivolous request for help and her frustrations with her own country were threatening to push her past her breaking point. A change of scenery might be called for. And it's a holiday festival, 
Jinpa added. You might even have fun. You are allowed to enjoy yourself from time to time, you know. Leave it to an air nomad to fall back on fun as the last argument. You can write back and tell the Fire Lord I am honored to accept his invitation, she said. We'll start planning the trip tomorrow. I don't think I can handle any more business for today. Jinpa bowed solemnly, hiding his satisfaction that finally the Avatar was stepping up to her responsibilities. No one needs their rest more than the Avatar. He left the room for the office they'd set up down the hall. Alone, Kyoshi stared at the cream-colored paper in silence. She hadn't mentioned to Jinpa the portion of the letter that tipped the scales in favor of the visit. It was a very specific piece of news at the end of the Fire Lord's message. The former headmistress of the Royal Academy had returned home after a long convalescence in Agna Kela, the capital of the Northern Water Tribe. So had her daughter. Perhaps the Avatar would like to see them, given the three had been acquaintances in Yokoya. They certainly wished to see her. Acquaintances. Kiyoshi didn't know it was possible to feel such relief and distress at once. She wasn't in the Fire Nation yet, and already she could picture who was waiting for her. The walking blaze of pure heat and confrontation. In the darkness of her exhaustion, a point of shining light beckoned. Rangi. Kiyoshi carefully folded the paper and tucked it into her robes, close to her thumping heart. Despite her secretary's wishes, she was not going to be getting much sleep tonight. Past Lives Jinpa's bison, Yingyong, had only five feet instead of the usual six. As a calf, he'd been attacked by a predator and lost his left forelimb. As an adult, the injury caused him to list slightly to the side when he was flying, which required Jinpa to give a gentle tug with the reins in the opposite direction every so often to maintain a straight course through the air. Kiyoshi had gotten used to traveling in Ying Yong's arcs. Kelsong's bison, Peng Peng, was busy raising calves of her own at the Southern Temple in a well-deserved retirement, and Kiyoshi had never expected the relationship to be permanent. Peng Peng might have been willing to put up with her, may have even liked her, but only a single air nomad could truly partner with one of the great beasts for life. She and Jinpa flew a little lower than usual on their way to the Fire Nation, close to the green waters of the Mosa Sea, where the air was warm and easy to breathe. The beautiful weather allowed it. Scoops of clouds drifted overhead in the blue sky, providing little pockets of shade for them to dip between. If Kyoshi missed anything from those days after she fled Yokoya on Pong Pong's back, it was these little in-between moments of travel. Most people would have assumed that floating on a bison with the breeze against her face was calming. But for Kyoshi, the upside was very different. Taking to the air gave her the assurance that for once, by default, she was doing the best she could. There weren't any faster ways to get from one point to another than a sky bison. 
she had no other options to fret over. An unsecured bag began to slide from one edge of the saddle to the other. Jinpa gave the reins another little yank, and Ying Yang righted himself. Kyoshi caught the sack and tucked it under a lashing. Is he okay? she asked. Does he need to rest? Nah, he's fine, Jinpa said. Lazy boy got distracted by a school of winged eels. Didn't you, boy? Who's a lazy, distracted boy with a poor attention span? He gave Ying Yang an affectionate scratch behind the ear. But if you do want to stop, there's an opportunity up ahead with an interesting piece of history. A small island where it's said that Avatar Yang Chen performed her first act of water bending. Want to see it? She did, honestly. Kiyoshi held an intense curiosity about one of the greatest avatars in history, her predecessor from two generations ago. Yang Chen was the woman who'd done everything right. She was the avatar, whom to this day was still invoked by people for protection and luck. Kiyoshi often wished she understood Yang Chen's leadership like a real scholar. She'd been making do with her commoner's knowledge of the blessed air avatar, who'd successfully kept the world in balance and harmony. She would study Yang Chen's work more the next time she returned to Yokoya. There had to be useful materials in the mansion's great libraries. Right now, though, she was in a hurry. We don't need to land. I'll take a look from above. Of course, avatar. I'll let you know when it comes up. Kiyoshi settled back into her seat. The letter under her jacket made a slight rasp against the fabric and a loud scrape against her nerves. She hadn't communicated with Rangi in a long time. Messenger hawks had trouble withstanding the extreme cold of the north, where her mother Heiran had been recovering. As a new avatar, Kiyoshi was always on the move. The mansion was as far away from the northern water tribe as a point in the Earth Kingdom could be. It seemed like the world had conspired to keep them apart and mute their voices. She wanted to think about something else, or talk to someone else. She still found it hard to make casual conversation with Jinpa, and a bison saddle was a large empty seat for one person. She was more accustomed to fighting for space with at least four other people, jostling shoulders, complaining about whose breath stank from eating too much pungent food. After a while, she felt Ying Yang turning into another role, sharper this time. So, where's this island? She asked Jinpa as she balanced herself against the rail. The sea was a flat sheet with nowhere to hide for a landmass. Jinpa leaned into the circle and examined the water. Hmm. Everything I've read said it should be around here. I don't see anything but that dark patch under the surface. Look, if we can't find it, we can just go. It's not important. Kyoshi. She screamed as a bolt of pain drove into her skull from temple to temple. It seized her by the neck and scoured her vision into a blur. Her hands went limp and lost their grip on the saddle. Kiyoshi keeled over the edge and fell off the bison, her ears filled with the sound of her own name.
She hurt the entire way down. A sharpness like daggers bounced from one side of her head to the other. It found an outlet down her spine where it could ransack her body. She was barely aware of how fast and far she was plummeting. Kyoshi. A man with a deep voice called to her, his words shredded by the wind speeding past her ears. It wasn't Jinpa. Kyoshi. The shock of cold salt water as she hit the ocean was a relief from the heated agony. She lost her sense of up and down. Her limbs drifted weightlessly. When she opened her eyes, there was no sting. Out of the endless blue, a figure drifted in front of her, mirroring her slackness in the water, as much of a prisoner as she. The shape of it was hazy, an ink painting dipped in a river. But she knew who the apparition clad in water tribe furs was. Avatar Kuruk. Kyoshi, need your help, too. The voice of Kyoshi's immediate predecessor in the Avatar cycle was much louder in the water, his native-born element. It thundered between her ears. Kyoshi, you must. I can't. It can pass. A hand plunged through Kuruk's body, dissolving it into the surrounding liquid like thin syrup. It grabbed Kyoshi's lapels and tugged her toward the surface. The salt water, which hadn't bothered her until now, dug into her eyes with a vengeance. Forgetting she was still below the surface, she gasped for air and got her throat splashed for her troubles. If Kuruk's spell could have kept her from drowning indefinitely, it was broken now. Jinpa kicked toward the rippling sunlight, holding tightly to her with one hand. At first, Kyoshi tried to help him by swimming upward herself. It took her an embarrassingly long time, floundering like that, to remember she was a waterbender surrounded by water. A quick raise of her arms and a rolling bubble carried her and Jinpa to the surface. They burst into the air and emptied the contents of their lungs. Kiyoshi hacked and coughed until she could breathe once more. Ying Yang floated in the water nearby, growling in worry. Are you all right? Jin Pa sputtered. Are you hurt? I'm fine, Kiyoshi said. The headache had mostly dissipated into the ocean. I just lost my balance and fell. Just fell? Jinpa was as visibly upset with her as an airbender could be. He was raising his voice. He was frowning at her. It was Kuruk. Kyoshi squeezed the sides of her head to dull the lingering throb. Her bending spared them the need to tread. He was trying to tell me something. Avatar Kuruk? You, you communed with Avatar Kuruk? You looked like you were having a fit. It's usually not this bad. It wasn't so painful the last couple of times. Jinpa's jaw threatened to unhinge and fall into the ocean. These episodes have happened before, and you haven't told me? Kyoshi, an avatar communing with their past selves, is supposed to be a hallowed experience, not a life-threatening seizure. Kyoshi grimaced. She knew. 
she knew exactly how lacking her spiritual connections were. She'd found out through trial and error. The Water Tribe Avatar had manifested before her in his complete form, exactly once in the Southern Air Temple, where he had the gall to ask her for help before dissipating just as quickly. She'd been left in a lurch, not knowing what to do with such a useless vision. But the experience did remind her she had access to a trove of worldly advice in the form of her past lives. A vast wealth of experience and wisdom lay at her fingertips. If she could only master her own spirit. Kiyoshi had tried reaching out to previous generations of the cycle by meditating in the sacred places of the Southern Air Temple, wayside shrines of the Earth Kingdom dedicated to the great avatars like Yang Chen and Salai, spots of natural beauty atop mountains and next to flowing rivers, she wasn't expecting it to be easy. She'd read that spiritualists had taken lifetimes to gain the skills of meditation, trance, and enlightenment. Kiyoshi had fully prepared herself to be greeted by the silence of failure when she tried to commune with her past selves. What she wasn't ready for, though, was getting jagged fragments of Kuruk. And only of Kuruk. Every single time. The results of her meditations were always the same. She would reach inwardly, attempt to harmonize with her past, and be met by the blotchy form of the water avatar, spitting garbled nonsense. It was as reliable as a dropped stone hitting the bottom of a well. She tried deciphering his mysterious request, but whatever connection they shared wasn't strong enough for her to figure it out and the sessions often hurt in a teeth-rattling, convulsive way. That was why she'd never asked a sage who'd been to the spirit world to guide her in meditation. She feared the same reaction as Jinpa's if anyone saw her fail so loudly and painfully. An avatar who struggled to reach her past lives was one thing, but an avatar who was violently rejected and roughed up by the process, like a thief caught sneaking into the wrong house, was another. Kiyoshi didn't need her legitimacy doubted more than it already was. Eventually, she'd stopped trying to commune. She hadn't been the greatest admirer of Kuruk anyway, and if he was the only past life out of a thousand generations willing to make contact with her, then she could do without. But sometimes, her predecessor forced the issue and appeared unbidden. It's not a big deal, she said to Jinpa. Occasionally, I'll have a vision of Kuruk, or hear his voice. I can never tell what he's trying to say. Jinpa couldn't believe she was talking about it, like a bad knee aching before it rained. Kiyoshi, he said, summoning the tranquility of his ancestors to keep from breaking down and weeping at her ineptness. If an avatar of the past has a message for you, it's usually of the utmost importance. Fine, she yelled. The first chance we get, we'll find a great enlightened master and I'll learn how to talk to Kuruk. Now can we please get back to our other top priority mission? Or are you somehow going to fix everything that's wrong with me all at once? The look of hurt and disappointment on the monk's face confirmed it. Kiyoshi might have been a bad avatar, but she was also a bad master to her secretary, 
one who not only yelled, but insulted. Not even Jenju put his staff down to their faces. She would have thought her experience on the other end of the relationship would have made her better at this. And Jinpa had saved her from drowning. Had she been wearing her heavy robes and bracers instead of a light traveling outfit, she might have sunk too fast for him to reach. I'm sorry, she said. Jinpa, I'm really sorry. I've no right to speak to you like that. He would have gotten along better with Yoon. The two of them would have become fast friends and played pie show from sunup to sundown. I, I wish you were serving a worthier avatar. Her apology didn't seem to be quite what he was looking for, but he acquiesced with his usual gentle smile. Jinpa clambered onto Ying Yang's withers and began wringing out his wet robes. Kyoshi sighed and plunged her face back below the surface, hoping the shame would rinse away. She saw something under the water that hardened her spirit again. The dark patch Jinpa had spotted from above was a wrecked and sunken atoll, an island blown apart and scarred by what could only be bending of the highest power. The reef structure was split and pitted, giant chunks of earth scattered like marbles, and swaths of coral had been ground smooth by unimaginably intense water bending. Kyoshi recognized the telltale marks of destruction well. This was Yang Chen's island. It was the same place where Kuruk and his companions had gone so he could practice going into the Avatar state for the first time. Maybe they didn't know, or maybe they'd chosen a location associated with Yang Chen to receive spiritual assistance from the great air avatar. But Kuruk, in his lapse of control, had destroyed the atoll and sunk it below the waves. A spot holy to Yang Chen and the air nomads was gone because of his carelessness. As she pulled herself back onto the saddle, Kiyoshi tried to model herself after Jinpa's calm. Some very unkind opinions were running through her head, and right now, the less she thought about Kuruk, the better. The Reunion It was strange to think that getting closer to a string of active volcanoes would make them feel better. But here they were, approaching the Fire Nation. Jinpa wisely avoided the plumes of noxious smoke emanating from the active peaks, but wove Ying Yang over the thermals in between, riding bumps of heated air in a playful winding course. It was enough to make Kyoshi forget herself and smile. Clumps of settlements could be seen on the smaller islands, usually by the coasts, but sometimes higher up in the mountains, where level pastures and shade-grown tea farms dotted the slopes. The land masses formed a thickening tail that led them to the body of Capital Island, where the earth doubled over on itself to form First Lord's Harbor. They swooped lower to see the city that had formed around the Fire Nation's largest port, already preparing for the upcoming celebration. Strings of red paper lanterns crisscrossed the streets, in some places thick enough to completely obscure the carts and sidewalks below. 
The sharp clack of vendors hammering their wooden stalls together filled the air. Kiyoshi spotted one alley, overtaken by a half-finished parade float. A team of dancers practiced their moves in rigorous unison atop the platform. This seems like a serious party, Kiyoshi said. She secretly wished she could be down there, among her fellow commoners for the celebrations, instead of attending a state function. There'd certainly be less pressure on her. You know how fire nationals are, Jinpa said as he waved at a bunch of gawking children on a rooftop who were thrilled to see a bison fly overhead. Buttoned up until the moment they let loose? They left Harbor City behind and continued flying up the slope of the caldera that dominated the big island. Trees and vines clung tenaciously to the steep, rocky surfaces, and the humidity grew heavy like a blanket. Should we stop here and announce ourselves? Jinpa said. He pointed to the stone watchtowers and bunkers built into the lip of the dead volcano. Kiyoshi shook her head. Impatience was rising in her chest, eyedwater threatening to spill over its levees. The letter said we should head straight to the palace. Sure enough, the pointy armored guards watched them fly by with hardly a reaction on their unmoving faces. Yingyang crested the edge, and the capital of the Fire Nation revealed itself like the burst of a firework. Royal Caldera City the home of the Fire Lord and the highest ranks of nobility in the country. Where Ba Sing Se equated power with expansiveness, Caldera City concentrated its status like the point of a spear. Towers rose into the air, brushing shoulders with their red-shingled neighbors. They reminded Kyoshi of plants competing for sunlight, stretching ever higher lest they fall behind and perish. Several glossy shining lakes lay in the bowl of the caldera, one much larger than the others. She'd forgotten their official names, but outside the Fire Nation, they were often referred to as the Queen and her Daughters, renowned for their crystalline beauty. It was said that no boat disturbed them on pain of death, but Kiyoshi now knew that to be a silly rumor. Lantern barges were already paddling across the mirror surfaces to set up for the festival. In the center of the depression was the royal palace, stern and barren. It was surrounded by a wide ring of naked beige stone that would force anyone who approached on foot to be unsettlingly exposed to the ramparts and watchtowers. Only within the inner walls did a garden dare to take root, and it was as sparse as a young man's beard. Kiyoshi knew that was likely a security measure to prevent thieves and assassins from moving from tree to tree undetected. With defensive concerns taken care of, the palace complex itself focused on grandeur over any other priority. A central spire pointed to the sky, flanked by two golden pagodas with an excess of upturned eaves, making it appear as if the roofs were adorned with animal claws. It looked more like a great shrine than a residence. The steep angles of the structure would have made it difficult to sneak in from above. Kiyoshi mentally slapped herself once she realized she was casing the home of the Fire Lord.
The old habits of the Flying Opera Company were sprouting from her head like dormant seeds after a fresh rain. Do you know where we're supposed to touch down? Jinpa said, interrupting her reverie. I'm a little wary of flying over the wall. I'm guessing that families who own mounted crossbows tend not to like that sort of thing. The main gate, but not too close. As a former servant, Kyoshi knew that the higher classes liked their visitors to enter their residences in just the right manner. To be awed and cowed by a well-designed display of culture and power. And the ruling family of the Fire Nation was the highest class it got. Ying Yang settled on the avenue that bisected the stone ring. They dismounted to walk the rest of the way to the gatehouse. On the ground, the bison had a bouncing gait from his single foreleg that made it hard for riders to stay in the saddle. Luggage would get thrown off his shoulders if it wasn't securely tied down. They came to the heavily barred, unbendable iron gate. There were no slats, view holes, or other means to show themselves. Kiyoshi wondered if she was supposed to knock, before a grinding metal noise broke the awkward silence. Somewhere inside, the gears of heavy machinery bit into each other, groaning with friction. The gate moved, not outward or inward, but straight up. A girl stood on the other side, revealed by inches, as if she were too much person, too much force for any one mortal to handle all at once. Sometimes Kyoshi believed that. In her mind, the grand scape of Caldera City and the Royal Palace was nothing compared to the splendor being unveiled right now. The gate finished its agonizing journey with a heavy metallic slam. The archway inside was lit with torches, none of which shone as bright as the pair of bronze eyes that flickered over Kiyoshi from head to toe. Other than wearing the armor of a higher-ranking officer that had fewer spikes and overhanging flaps and more gold trim, Rongi looked the same. Her ink-black hair had grown back to its usual length. Her posture was as stiff and unyielding as Kiyoshi remembered. And she still wrapped herself in the same air of unquestionable superiority. To be in Rongi's presence was to not meet her standards. A mere few seconds of silence were enough to make Kyoshi tremble. Her worst fears pushed their way to the forefront. Enough time had passed that Rongi might have changed into Kyoshi's former. Former teacher, former bodyguard, former everything. The stillness of the moment was broken by a strange noise that Kiyoshi had heard only once before. Rangi laughing and choking at the same time. The firebender slumped over, leaning her hand against the nearest wall, and gasped for breath like she'd been holding it since the gate cracked open. I had to sprint over here, all the way across the grounds, so I could look impressive greeting you, she wheezed. I must be out of shape. The band snapped from around Kyoshi's heart, giving it room to beat once more. Is that how you've been doing it? 
The whole time they'd known each other, Rangi would often be waiting for her, ridiculously early, or she'd suddenly and dramatically appear out of nowhere at the last minute. Knowing she'd simply been running at top speed from place to place hurt the mystique a little. Rangi grinned and nodded as she caught her breath. At least I don't have to worry about other fire nationals seeing me right now. The only blind spot in the defenses is right here, directly under the gate itself, which means I can do this. She reached up and yanked Kyoshi inside the wall, right into a searing kiss. Cultural Diplomacy Kiyoshi forgot what she was supposed to be doing, where she was, which way was up. Memories faded before the warmth of Rangi's lips. The two of them melded into each other, alloyed. And then, in a supreme display of cruelty as far as Kiyoshi was concerned, Rangi broke it off and took a step back. Welcome to the Fire Nation, Avatar, she said, professional once more. She smoothed a strand of hair that had fallen out of place, but otherwise acted like she hadn't just robbed Kiyoshi of her wits, using nothing but her mouth. The Avatar was still reeling, too dazed to respond. Mistress Rangi, Jinpa said, stepping deftly around her to greet their host. He bowed, palms pressed together in the air nomad way. It's good to finally meet you in person. Kyoshi flushed in spite of herself. Jinpa knew who Rangi was, but she didn't necessarily want her secretary witnessing her private moments. Day one of Kyoshi's first visit to the Fire Nation, she could imagine him documenting for posterity. The avatar inappropriately kisses the love of her life while standing in the threshold of the most fortified place in the world. Brother Jinpa, Rangi said with a friendliness she rarely showed anyone. I am honored by your presence. You can leave your bison by the gate while the two of you follow me. Our stable masters are trained in the care of mounts from every nation. She leaned in and gave him a wink. I let them know that I'd make them suffer immensely if they mishandled your companion. Jinpa laughed until a look from Kiyoshi told him that Rangi wasn't kidding. His chuckle died in his throat. He went back and loosened Ying Yang's reins. Be a good boy and stay here. Kiyoshi heard him whisper in the bison's ear, to which the animal made a plaintive rumble. Yes, I know she's scary. I'll be fine. Once Ying Yang was settled, Kyoshi, Rangi, and Jinpa walked down the tunnel. It had been designed to kill people. Small holes pricked through the iron plates that coated the passageway, apertures designed to let arrows or fire blasts through. The floor was solid but hollow, implying a sudden drop if the defenders pulled a lever. A single cough echoed through the hall before being forcibly swallowed. It hadn't come from them. If each firing hole had a soldier behind it, then a whole troop was watching them go by. Kiyoshi glanced nervously around the iron gullet until they emerged on the other side of the wall into a paved plaza that ran through the garden. 
the stark nature of the greenery stripped it of any calming effect. A single minister waited for them, wearing the red and black silks of a civilian authority and the unhappy expression of a tightly wound fuss budget. Avatar Kyoshi, he said. His deep bow made his lengthy gray mustache droop off his face. I am Chancellor Dairin, head palace historian. On behalf of Fire Lord Zoryu, I extend our country's greetings. The honor is mine, Chancellor, Kyoshi said. Where is the Fire Lord? His message indicated that we have important matters to discuss. Dairin's face pickled further. He is indisposed at the moment. You will see Fire Lord Zoryu tonight. This was a brusker greeting than Kyoshi was expecting. Though to be fair, she had no business criticizing anyone for their lack of diplomacy. Rangi stepped in to ease the awkwardness. I believe the first item on the agenda is the palace tour, Chancellor, she said. Kyoshi has been telling me nonstop how she's been looking forward to learning more from one of the world's foremost Avatar scholars. The flattery was like sticking candy in the mouth of an angry child. Dairin couldn't show how pleased he was for fear of looking silly. Of course, he said, frowning harder with all his might. I assure you it is very long and comprehensive. This way inside, please. Kyoshi and the others padded solemnly down the corridors of power, as her predecessors had done since the unification of the Fire Islands. The great halls of the palace were empty in a way that could only be achieved by the household staff, watching them, moving out of their path, guards and servants shuffling behind corners so as not to offend the Avatar's sight with their presence. Kiyoshi knew this trick very well. It gave the illusion of calm and solitude when maintenance of such a great manner required the chaos and numbers of an army. As they walked, pretending they were alone, Dairin pointed out works of fire avatar poetry and policy on scrolls preserved in boxes of clear crystal. Kyoshi nodded appropriately at jewels and gilded hairpins worn in her past lives, tucked into alcoves for display. No toys, she noted, but plenty of gens, dows, engraved daggers. The relics of each nation had their own personalities, and fire and air couldn't be more different. Jinpa asked Dairin questions and begged for elaborations on the answers like an eager student, the two of them slightly outpacing Kyoshi and Rangi. The furtive wink he gave Kyoshi over his shoulder let her know he was purposely creating an opportunity for the laggards to talk to each other. Kyoshi really needed to give him a raise. She didn't pay him anything, the monk serving her out of some self-imposed duty to the Avatar but he deserved a raise nonetheless. How is your mother? Kiyoshi whispered to Rangi. The last time she'd seen Heiran, the woman was barely clinging to life. Well enough that she wants to speak with you tonight, at your reception, Rangi said. As if this visit wasn't nerve-wracking enough.
Still, Heyron being healthy was a blessing. It explained Rongi's ease, her ability to pick up right where they left off. So who's this Dairon person then? Kiyoshi asked. I thought there was a special Fire Nation minister in charge of handling Avatar relations. There's supposed to be. I don't know why Dairon was the only official sent to greet you either. Maybe Lord Zoryu's having some problems with his staff, but I don't dare ask. I have some privileges from my connection with you, but really, I'm only a first lieutenant here in the palace. Kiyoshi nearly laughed. Only a lieutenant, a rank many adults in the Fire Nation strove for and failed to reach. Rangi's casually overachieving nature was one of the many little things Kiyoshi missed about her. Tell me about your secretary. Rangi tilted her head at Jinpa's back. What was there to tell? He's part of some kind of secret pie show club, and he acts the complete opposite of an air nomad sometimes. I haven't figured him out, but he's been a good- And here we are at the Royal Portrait Gallery, Dairon said loudly, stopping short. Kiyoshi nearly collided with him and Jinpa. She was steadied by Rangi grabbing the back of her tunic. She could imagine news of the disaster spreading over the Fire Nation, the Avatar bowling over her entire entourage. The Chancellor hadn't noticed how close he'd come to being trampled. He gazed upward at the walls with sheer pride bursting from his expression. I could spend days here and never get tired of it, he said. His reverence was well-deserved. The portrait hall was one of the most overawing works of man-made craft that Kiyoshi had ever seen. Paintings of the Fire Lords adorned one side, reaching from floor to ceiling, triple the size of their real-life subjects. Cloaked in red and black with halos of gold behind them, the rulers of the Fire Nation looked down at their audience like a race of giants. Even a first-time visitor like Kiyoshi could tell that these were works of art that took years, careers to finish. The late Fire Lord Cheiryu's portrait, the most recent entry into the gallery, wasn't complete. Stencils where gold inlay and orange hues had yet to be filled in spread across the background near his feet. Rangi nudged her to look at the other side of the gallery. Opposite the Fire Lord's, stood the fire avatars, painted in matching size and grandeur, equally breathtaking in artistic glory. These portraits were spaced farther apart. Judging by the way there was roughly one avatar per four fire lords, and how the gaps were not perfectly even, Kyoshi guessed that the likenesses of her predecessors formed a timeline that stretched down the hall. The viewing party stopped, at Avatar Sito, depicted in his trademark tall minister's hat. Where most of the other figures held a ball of fire in one hand, avatars and fire lords alike, Ito hefted an abacus, rendered with as much loving detail as any of the illustrated flames or weapons wielded by his compatriots. Each bead of the counting instrument was set with real pearl, and they were racked to a calculation that ended in an auspicious number. In his other hand, he wielded a stamp 
made gigantic for artistic license. It was unlikely that the real item would have been so large, or carved from solid cinnabar like it was shown in the painting. Sito would have blanked out whatever was written on the paper he was trying to approve. Here we have the namesake of our festival, Dairin said. The Fire Nation owes a great debt to this man. Can you tell me more about Avatar Sito? Kyoshi asked. I'm afraid I don't know as much about him as I should. The Chancellor cleared his throat for a long lecture. During Sito's childhood years, the Fire Nation teetered on the verge of collapse, struck by plague and natural disasters, he said. The wrath of the spirits was terrible, and Fire Lord Yosor was in little position to halt the fracturing of the country along the old fault lines of the clans. The clans? Kiyoshi said. Dairin sighed, realizing he'd have to cover some remedial history as well. Each noble house of the Fire Nation is descended from one of the old warlords from the period before the country was united. That is why the noble clans retain certain rights, such as governance of their home islands and the retention of household troops. During Lord Yosor's reign, the clans set their warriors against each other, ravaging the countryside in futile bids for power and resources. Many historians, myself included, opine that without Sito's intervention, the Fire Islands would have splintered apart, reverting to the dark days of Taz the Cruel and the other pre-unification warlords who caused so much suffering for our people. Kiyoshi was surprised at how much this story sounded like the Yellowneck Uprising. From what she always heard as a commoner, the Fire Nation was a model of harmony and effectiveness, the counterpoint to the bickering Earth Kingdom polities. Sito's era was not that far away in the distance of history. She didn't have to fake her interest or rely on Jinpa for this part of the tour. What did he do to fix the situation? she asked. He applied for a job, Dairin said. Though as the Avatar, his material needs would have been met and his decrees heeded, Sito took a government post as a minister of the royal court, technically subject to the same rules and regulations as any other official. He showed up to work at the capital and sat at a desk. Furthermore, he insisted that his career advance at the pace of his achievements, rather than leapfrogging his seniors just because he was the Avatar. And that helped, Kiyoshi said incredulously. It turned out to be a brilliant strategy, Rangi said. Rather than chase emergencies all over the nation, he concentrated his efforts on a central location and spread his influence from there. Sito was an extremely capable bureaucrat, accountant, and diplomat. And since he was working for the royal family, there was no split in legal and spiritual authority in the country. His victories were the Fire Lord's victories. Dairin nodded, satisfied that the youth of today were being educated suitably about their nation's past. Once he was promoted to Grand Advisor, 
Avatar Sito was able to end the open hostilities between rival noble houses. A lasting peace followed, in which he continued to serve his country with dignity and excellence. He put an end to the debasement of coins, Rangi said. It rescued the economy from the brink of disaster. One of the scrolls we passed on the way here said he set up the first official programs to give relief to the peasantry in times of famine, Jinpa said. And most important, he kept proper records of it all, Dairin said. He wiped the corner of his eye out of habit, as if he'd been moved to tears in the past when thinking about Sito, and was just making sure right now. Truly, Avatar Sito was an ideal for us officials to live up to, and a shining example of Fire Nation values in general. Efficiency, precision, loyalty. Kiyoshi gazed with new admiration at the dour, long-faced man, whose festival they were here to celebrate. She liked this Sito fellow, or this version of herself, as it were. A strong work ethic and an eye for organization were traits she respected. Perhaps she should have tried communing with him instead of focusing on Yang Chen so often. Dairin graciously allowed their party to drift toward the art pieces that interested them. Kyoshi wandered over to the portrait of Lord Cheiru again. Knowing more about him could help ingratiate her with his son, the current Fire Lord Zoryu. Kyoshi tried to interpret some of the imagery. Cheiryu's theme seemed to be vegetation. She could see bundled rice stalks, a harvest bounty. There was a penciled outline yet to be painted, a detailed flower arrangement with two blossoms sprouting from the same vase. In the vessel, a large stone camellia greatly overshadowed a smaller winged peony. That was odd. Kiyoshi knew the basics of flower arranging in the Fire Nation style, and that kind of off-balance spacing was normally frowned upon. In real life, the bigger plant would have blocked off the sunlight from the lesser one and caused it to wither. Chancellor, she said, I have a question about these flowers. Dairin tensed up unnaturally at the word flowers. He hurried to her side with a sense of dread, not waiting for her to ask anything, and peered frantically at the stencils like he expected some sort of unpleasant revelation. It took him a little longer than Kiyoshi to see the outlines, but when he did, his reaction was unmistakable. The chancellor turned white and trembling, and beads of sweat gathered on his nose. Do not speak of this to anyone but the Fire Lord, Dairin muttered under his breath. Wait, what? Kiyoshi had heard him clearly, but she didn't understand the life or death conviction in his voice. The Chancellor clapped his hands, the sharp noise startling Rangi and Jinpa, who were still looking at other paintings. The tour is over, he declared. His eyes darted to the entrance of the gallery, fearful of the empty space. Avatar, my apologies for prattling on when you must be tired from your journey. 
I will show you to your accommodations. Immediately. The floors and walls of the Avatar's quarters in the Fire Palace were so laden with antiques and artwork it could have passed for a small museum in itself. For the remainder of her stay, Kiyoshi could look forward to enjoying landscapes painted in cinnabar, vermilion sculptures of preening birds, tapestries woven with carmine threads. The overwhelming redness of the space made it hard to tell distances inside. The room where she was going to sleep might have been as big as the bottom level of Longkau. I feel like I'm staring directly into the sun, Jinpa said. He pressed his palms against his eyes and blinked. It took me a while to get used to so much red again myself, Rangi said. She sat down on the corner of what Kiyoshi had thought was a large raised platform and bounced softly, which meant that the scarlet quilted square wide enough to hold a lay tie on top of it was the bed. Agna Kula is the same thing, only with ice. You need special goggles to move around the brightest parts, or else you'll go snow blind. The mention of the North made Kiyoshi's innards clench. It was a reminder of how far Rangi had journeyed to seek treatment from water tribe healers for her mother's poisoning, and a warning of how demands on the Avatar could steal away time in the blink of an eye. Kiyoshi hadn't been to the North Pole yet. She was lucky that Rangi wasn't angry at her for not visiting. She thought about bringing up Dairin's cryptic actions in the gallery, but didn't. Less out of concern for his wishes, and more because she and Rangi had more important things to talk about. Kiyoshi turned to Jinpa. Can you give us some time alone? She asked him, motioning at the door. Not so fast, Rangi said. Report, please, Brother Jinpa. The monk stepped forward like a first-day recruit and addressed her directly, completely bypassing Kiyoshi. She hasn't been eating properly, despite my repeated admonitions. Hmm, Rangi pressed her lips together in disapproval. She can be stubborn like that. Hey, Kyoshi said, don't talk about me like I'm not here. Jinpa continued to count out various offenses on his thumb and fingers, bending them back one by one. She barely gets any sleep. I'll find her passed out late at night, on top of a book or a map or a manual. She doesn't give herself enough time to recover from her injuries. And she insists on reacting to random reports of violence throughout the Earth Kingdom in person. Do you know how hard it is to manage her schedule when she does that? Out of all her fears for this visit, Kiyoshi hadn't been prepared for this scenario, her secretary and her bodyguard ganging up on her. Have you two been riding each other behind my back? Only the one time, Rangi said. I sent Jinpa a letter at the same time as I sent your invitation. It was the only way I would get a truthful update on whether you've been taking care of yourself. Apparently you haven't. She hasn't, Jinpa confirmed. Quite the opposite, in fact. If I didn't know any better, I would say she's intentionally seeking out the most dangerous situations and hurling herself into them 
without any regard for her own safety. That's not true. Oh, so then I suppose you fell neck first into a sharp object by accident? Rungi said. A deep scowl crossed her features. Don't think I haven't noticed your new scars. It's like you're ruining my favorite parts on purpose. Jinpa wiped his eyes, the release making him emotional. She is so taxing, he said into his fist, sniffling a little. Rangi got up from the bed and patted him on the back. I know, I know she is. She's the worst. You've done a heroic job taking care of her, and I'm here to help you now. I am the Avatar, Kyoshi said in a desperate last resort to shield herself from further judgment. Not some helpless child. The way she stamped her foot undercut her message. Rangi and Jimpa gave each other a squint. Are we sure about that? I'm not so sure. Kiyoshi's head hurt. She had spent long months building fortifications around herself, establishing a reputation and self-image in the Earth Kingdom as someone not to be trifled with. It had taken Rangi less than an hour in the Fire Nation to tear those walls down and invite Jinpa inside. Jinpa's growing grin told her this was revenge, glorious revenge, aged like fine wine until the perfect moment. This was payback for all the times she'd ordered him to drop the conversation about her injuries or ignored his reminders to put the books away and get some rest. She finally figured out how she felt about the young man who'd been there quietly in the background, providing her care with grace and compassion. He was a dirty snitch. You can't talk about me like this, Kyoshi fumed, pointing her finger at Jinpa. In the Daofei Code, snitches were punished by thunderbolts and knives. I am your boss. That may be, but she's clearly the one in charge. He tipped his bald head at Rangi, positively gleeful with the new method of avatar management he'd been gifted. If squealing is what it takes to keep you healthy, then slap me with a feather and call me a pig chicken. Get out, Yoshi snapped. Jinpa shared another knowing smile with Rangi as he backed out the door. Look at her, trying to be tough, how adorable. And then, suddenly, for the first time in a long time, Kiyoshi and Rangi were alone together. It was like being granted a wish from a spirit before she was ready. Kiyoshi felt the need to choose her words carefully, or else her boon would vanish. Rangi helped her with the selection. How are things back at the mansion? She asked quietly. She'd lived there alongside Kiyoshi. Yokoya had been her home too, until that night they fled together into the storm. Less busy. The mansion was no longer the vibrant, bustling place it was during Kiyoshi's servant days. Much of the staff had quit immediately after the Earth King's investigators closed the poisoning case. As the new master of the estate, Kiyoshi didn't replace them, not wanting to manage a large household anyway, which left most of the halls empty and the gardens untended. The villagers avoided the hollowed-out manor and called it an unlucky place. 
Auntie Mui is still there, doing what she can. I don't know why she hasn't left yet. Your why? Rongi looked pained and frustrated, as if an old injury that should have long since healed had been prodded too hard. She's trying to support you, Kyoshi. She was going to say more on the matter, but decided to hold it for another day. Their next topic needed every possible inch of space cleared around it before they could approach. For a while, the two of them stared at the same patch of red threads woven into the rug. Again, Rangi got there first. Yoon. One of the promises that Kiyoshi had made to Rangi before she boarded the ship bound for the frigid reaches of the north was that she would find their friend, no matter what it took. The declaration had been slipped in among tears and embraces so tight, Kiyoshi's shoulders ached for days afterward. The witnesses were the dock workers and sailors weaving around them on the pier, grumbling at their obliviousness to anything but each other. But in the expanse of the Earth Kingdom, the force of her vow had dissipated. She'd quickly learned that without some kind of edge, it was functionally impossible to find a single person in the depths of the largest continent. Even one as famous as Yun had been, she hadn't a shu to track his scent, nor spiritual trigrams to read for his location. Asking commoners in the villages she visited in the course of her avatar duties if they'd seen a particular earthbender was a laughable exercise. Greyhand? Sure, my cousin's got a skin problem like that. Looking back on it now, her grand ambitions had been reduced to pathetic letter-writing campaigns to sages who had no inclination to help. And why would they? Lu Beifong wasn't the only one who preferred to believe he was dead. I thought if I could figure out how he survived, it might give me a lead, Kiyoshi said. But every story I found of people taken bodily by spirits was a folk tale, and none of them live. I don't have an explanation for how he came back, or why he changed. She rubbed her eyes. The sting of reliving her failures made it hard to see straight. The closest piece of information I could find was an account of a spirit possessing the son of a provincial governor during the Hao Dynasty. It said a dragon bird flew through his body, altered his physical appearance, and gave him unusual abilities. Is that the answer? Rongi said. Maybe people touched by spirits can pass through the boundaries between the spirit world and the human realm easier than others. It's hard to say. The text didn't mention crossing between worlds. It just said the boy sprouted feathers and a beak when the dragon bird flew into him. Yun didn't look any different on the outside when I saw him in Chin Chow, but he's not the same as before. I just know it. Kiyoshi felt like screaming in the red chamber. This was the best she had done for their friend. An old story and a wild guess. She couldn't pretend in front of Rangi. The full weight of her futile, wasted efforts crushed down on her shoulders. Kiyoshi, have you ever considered that he's moved on? 
She looked up at Ronge's question, confused. From what? From us. Ronge swallowed, the words hurting her as she spoke them. Based on what you've told me, I don't believe he wants to be found. She held up a hand to cut off Kyoshi's protest. Think about it. There are numerous ways he could have gotten in contact with the Avatar. He knows the sages of the Earth Kingdom. He could have left a message with them. The fact you haven't heard from him yet is telling. Kiyoshi could believe the nobles of the Earth Kingdom wanted to stick their heads in the sand when it came to Yoon. But Rongi? How could she? You're talking about forgetting him, Kiyoshi said, her breath already shortening in her chest. Erasing him, like Lu Beifong and the rest of the sages want to do. Like Jenju wanted to do. No, Kiyoshi, I'm not. I'm talking about letting our friend come back to us when he wants to, not when we demand it. I want the people I care about to have a moment's peace instead of one obsessing over the other. You said he was healthy when you saw him, Rangi said. I don't think we need to worry about his survival. Someone as talented as Yoon can flourish anywhere in the Earth Kingdom. I'd stake my honor on him showing up when he's ready. And when he does, we'll take him to task for everything that's happened. And then afterward, she declared with the force of a fresh oath, you, me, and him will go back to Yokoya and eat the biggest dinner Auntie Mui's ever cooked. That should be our plan. Kiyoshi forced a smile. Jenju, the tea house in Chinchow. How Yoon had escaped that infernal spirit's clutches to emerge once more into the daylight. It might have been possible to unravel the knot, provided they were still dealing with their old friend. The three of them together, like it was before Avatarhood, severed a corner of the triangle off. She wanted the old days back more than anything else in the world. But deep down, she was afraid of a truth the world kept pushing on her. Kiyoshi rarely got what she wanted, if ever. Rangi saw she wasn't getting through. She decided on a different tack, coming closer with a hint of sway in her hips. You know, the party's not for a few hours. Her voice grew heated and breathy. She reached out and ran her thumb and forefinger lightly over the lapel of Kyoshi's tunic. I have an idea how to get your mind off your troubles until then. A dumb grin spread across Kyoshi's face. She leaned down so Rangi could brush her lips against her ear. Stance training, Rangi whispered. Her grip on Kiyoshi's clothes suddenly turned into a grapple. In one swift motion, she kicked Kiyoshi's feet wider and forcibly bent her knees into a deep hinge. Do you know how easy it was for me to pull you off balance at the gate? Rangi yelled. You haven't been practicing. I thought I could trust you not to go soft in my absence, but I was wrong. 
Kiyoshi stuttered in dismay. But I thought we were... What we do without guidance defines who we are. Rangi seemed determined to flay those months of mist exercises out of Kiyoshi's hide one way or another. Twenty minutes without a break, or I bust you back to square one of your training. You'll be doing hot squats with ten-year-old academy washouts. You want that, huh? As the burning began to spread through her legs and lower back, Kiyoshi grasped her mistake in coming here. Reuniting with Rangi meant having to deal with the cruelest and harshest person she knew. The Avatar's firebending Sifu. Lower, Rangi bellowed. The Performance Kiyoshi stepped out of the dressing chamber, feeling readier for the trials ahead. She'd grown more skilled at wielding the many layers of her outfit and could pull them on without assistance now. As she entered the bedroom, she cinched her sash as if buckling down a shield. Rongi waited for her in an overstuffed throne-like chair. You've made alterations, she said, eyeing the sections where the colors were slightly different from her memory. I kept mending the original fabric, but eventually it took too much damage. I picked out new patterns I liked and had some pieces replaced. Despite Kyoshi's ill repute, the best tailors in Bossing say had tripped over their own feet for a chance to dress the Avatar. Free advertising was still free advertising. As she took Kyoshi in, Rangi landed on a detail that made her frown. You kept the chain mail liner, though. Made it heavier. The comment was loaded. Kyoshi could see the thoughts running through Rangi's head. What kind of dangers have you been putting yourself through without me? She tried to say something that might relieve her friend's worry. Safety first? Rongi sighed. Kyoshi, it's more than that. You're the guest of honor tonight. You could have worn the finest robes in the world, and instead you picked the same clothes you fight in. This is a small informal reception with a handful of guests on the personal invitation of Fire Lord Zoryu. You're not going into battle. You don't have to be constantly at war. Kiyoshi remembered the last time she'd let herself fully relax without a care. She could relive every detail all too easily. It had been a sunny afternoon in Zigan Village, made brighter for having survived and scattered the yellow-neck menace. Her healed hands smelling faintly of herbal tincture. Kiyoshi walking down the street, side by side with Rongi. And Lek. She often wondered how Rongi felt about those days, whether their time spent with the Flying Opera Company was real, or just a mantle to be cast off on the way to proper avatarhood. Would Rangi mention the rest of Kiyoshi's bending masters during the party? Would their exploits in the Daofei town of Hujiang, their illicit raid on Governor Tae's manor, make for an amusing story? Or would Rangi pretend their gang never existed? That journey certainly hadn't lasted long in the grand scheme of things. Kiyoshi cleared her throat of a welling, thrashing bitterness. I suppose you're not going to let me wear my bracers, then. Of course not, 
We'll get you some gloves if you want, but in this country, your hands are nothing to be overly surprised about. Half the attendees tonight have dueling scars hidden here and there underneath their clothes. You don't. Rangi's skin was unmarred everywhere Kiyoshi had been lucky enough to see it. Rangi snorted. That's because I don't lose duels. She pushed herself out of the chair and twirled, swishing her dress so she could inspect her own hem from all sides. Rangi wore a formal silk gown that gave her the swept, elegant appearance of a stamen emerging from a flower of blood-red petals. She looked lovelier than a garden after a brisk rain. I know it sounds frivolous and wasteful, but appearances matter here in the palace, Rangi said. Fire Nation nobles dress and act to represent their clan affiliation and rank. Our peers notice our smallest choices and assign meaning and intentions to them. She smoothed a crease in Kyoshi's skirt. Deep in the bowels of the Earth Kingdom, no one was watching us. That's how we got away with half the antics we did. Here in the Fire Nation, everyone is watching you. I want you to remember that. Everyone is watching. Kiyoshi's stomach gurgled from the mounting stress. So it's not going into battle, she said. It's worse. Rangi didn't disagree. Your clothes will pass for now, but as the festivities progress, you should choose different looks. And it goes without saying, but no face paint during the length of the holiday. Kiyoshi was going to protest, but Rangi poked her in the chest. The paint is for pulling jobs with our sworn brothers and sisters, she whispered, her eyes glistening with memories. Not for mingling among abiders and square folk who don't understand the code. Kiyoshi stared at her. Then slowly, deliberately, she enveloped the smaller girl in her embrace and kissed her on the forehead. Rangi squeezed back tightly. There should have been no doubt in Kiyoshi's mind. The firebender hadn't officially taken the oaths, but the Flying Opera Company were her friends too. And Rangi's friends were as sacred as honor to her. Kiyoshi had gone so long without her center, she almost forgot what it felt like. Rangi made her human again, balanced and whole. You better get your fill of this now, Rangi murmured as Kiyoshi brushed her lips against her. When we're in public, you cannot touch my head or my face or my hair. But those were Kiyoshi's favorite parts. Really? You've always let me. Rangi unraveled herself from Kiyoshi and fixed the arrangement of her hairpins. That's because back in the Earth Kingdom it didn't matter. But here, touching someone's head outside of your closest family is one of the most disrespectful gestures imaginable. It's best if you avoid touching anyone in general, including me. I hate it as much as you do, but now that we're actually inside the gates of the palace, we have to follow decorum. She eyed Kiyoshi with suspicion, having been on the receiving end of many kisses to the scalp due to their height difference. I mean it, 
hands off from the neck up. I get it, I get it. A knock came from outside the room. Avatar, Mistress Rangi, it's time to go, Jinpa called. From his carefully measured pitch, it was obvious he was trying to give them as much clearance as possible. They joined him in the hallway. The monk had chosen the version of air nomad traditional robes that pinned up at one shoulder and left the other uncovered. His arm and the side of his torso were exposed in a bare sweep down to his waist, revealing a surprising set of muscles on the lanky young man. What? Jinpa said at their silence. Too pastoral? Rangi shrugged. Usually people don't go shirtless in the royal palace, but there's bound to be exceptions for national dress. It's fine. Kiyoshi was glad her fans had escaped commentary. They rested in her sash, passable as court fashion, unless she thumped someone with their heavy weight. It was ironic that she first thought them less useful than a blade. She'd need the comfort they provided, given the daunting task ahead. She exhaled through gritted teeth. All right, let's go meet the Fire Lord. You two are worthless, Kyoshi whispered, doing her best to direct her ire equally between Rangi and Jinpa, who kneeled on either side of her. You're both fired. Lord Zoryu promised me it would be twenty to thirty people at maximum, Rangi said through a tightened smile. A small gathering. Does this look like a small gathering to you? Over five hundred pairs of golden eyes stared at the Avatar and her companions as they perched on a raised dais that had been erected with unbelievable speed in the same formerly empty gardens they'd observed from above on Yingyong. It seemed like the entire assembled nobility of the Fire Nation was present, standing at attention, watching Kiyoshi, their one and only objective. In a banked row off to the side, percussionists bellowed over their mallets, thundering against drums the size of wine tons. Erhu players sawed at their instruments with such ferocity that a pile of destroyed bows lay behind them. They tossed the casualties of their performance over their shoulders and drew fresh ones from nearby quivers without missing a beat. The speed and martial intensity of the music was at odds with the calm, almost meditative stillness of the listeners. Kiyoshi wouldn't have known if they were enjoying it, if not for the slight approving nods she caught here and there from the members of the court nearest her. She should have known something was wrong from the start. Chancellor Dairin had ambushed them outside their quarters and whisked them through a series of baffling passages, explaining there had been a last-minute change to the program. Now here they were, being deafened and honored in equal measure. Having supported a few grand events as a servant, Kyoshi knew that hosts only pulled out the stops like this if they had something to prove. But there was nothing for the Fire Lord to be insecure about, unless he thought she was evaluating him on how lavishly he feted her. She would assure Lord Zoryu this kind of reception was unnecessary if she ever made it to his side. Right now, the Fire Lord was very far away, 
on the other side of the Sea of Nobles, nested on a platform that mirrored Kiyoshi's. In the distance, she could only make out the gold-on-black edging of the royal armor shoulder pieces he wore over his robes, and a couple of his most prominent features. She could tell the Fire Lord was a young man with a pointy chin and a tall forehead, and that was about it for now. Squinting for more details would have been rude, and detectable by the entire gathering. To make matters more uncomfortable, Lu Beifong was here, of all people. The old man sat near the edge of the crowd on a folding stool. He was surrounded by a small group of Earth Kingdom sages. Based on the faces she recognized, they appeared to be handpicked solely on the criteria of who disliked Kyoshi the most. I'm sorry, Avatar, Jinpa said. He shifted on his knees, not used to the position compared to the way air nomads sat cross-legged to meditate. None of my sources indicated there would be an Earth Kingdom delegation. I'll try to keep them from troubling you with petty requests. The performance ended in a crashing halt, the musicians shouting at the top of their lungs one last time in unison. The ones who were sitting to play leaped to their feet, their arms spread wide, and the drummers held their sticks over their heads like victory flags. They posed for a moment, breathing heavily. The crowd responded with polite applause that ended equally abruptly. If the performers were disappointed by the muted response, they didn't show it. They began packing up their instruments without a word, while the assembled nobles turned to each other. Ear-splitting music was replaced by the murmurs of delicate conversation. That's it? Kiyoshi asked, her words suddenly too loud. She looked behind her to see Dairin motioning the three of them to get off the platform. They joined the chancellor on the ground level. What happens now? She asked him. According to palace garden party etiquette, now you mingle in the general direction of the fire lord, Dairin said, as tense as Auntie Mui before a banquet. His mustache wiggled from the strain. He will do the same to you. This allows for the two of you to encounter each other as equals, as perfectly as two leaves drifting together on the surface of a pond. This method of reception is one of the highest honors the ruling family can grant a guest. It is beyond my station to linger at your side. Okay, Kyoshi said. The objective was straightforward. Go talk to the Fire Lord. Got it. No, Rangi said, already knowing what Kyoshi was thinking. You can't go right to Lord Zoryu, or else that would be rude to the other guests. Behind the cover of the platform, she hastily adjusted Kyoshi's lapels and sash, brushing lint and garden pollen off the fabric. So I have to chat with everyone I bump into? No. Only certain individuals here have enough status to speak in your presence. Kiyoshi was getting desperate. How will I know who they are? Those with the right to approach the Avatar by themselves will introduce those who do not, Rangi said. Remember, 
Between fire nationals, higher rank always introduces lower rank. The introduction is the pivotal juncture that sets the tone for the rest of the conversation. She saw the anxiousness in Kiyoshi's face. You may directly address whomever you want without preface, up to and including the Fire Lord. To be greeted by the Avatar herself is a great blessing. But I strongly recommend you reserve that honor for Lord Zoryu. Jinpa and I will be by your side, but we won't necessarily be able to speak unless the situation allows it. There was so much to remember. I'm going to die here, aren't I? Kyoshi said with a groan. Don't worry, Avatar, Jinpa said. He stepped forward and rolled his shoulders. I've failed you once tonight as your Chamberlain. It won't happen again. Despite his bravery, Jinpa was the first to fall. As they entered the crowd, a little circle of courtiers interested in meeting an air nomad for the first time quickly isolated him from the group. Apparently, speaking to an airbender was fair game for most of the attendees. They had to leave him behind, trying to answer questions about the Western Air Temple and its unusual upside-down architecture. Kiyoshi assumed he was improvising many of the inner details, given that the Western Temple housed nuns only. Her exalted status as the Avatar kept people from approaching her, but not from scrutinizing her. The court made sure to provide a respectful amount of physical space, creating a little bubble that moved with Kiyoshi and Rongi at its center, which only made the glances over the tops of their glasses, the sideways stares, the lulls in conversation as they passed, more obvious. It was deeply unsettling. Kiyoshi found her pulse rising, a mindset of neutral Jing failing to calm her. She had to distract herself by observing them back, taking mental notes the same way she did on her patrols through dangerous territory. This was the first time she'd seen so many high-ranking fire nationals in one place. The nobility of this country favored more understated fashions than their counterparts in the Earth Kingdom, choosing red-on-red red patterns for their robes and gowns. The broad expanse of their shoulder pieces seemed like the most common way they expressed their associations. She could see subtle geometric sigils imprinted on the swaths of fabric or simple renditions of native flowers and animals. One particular image she noticed again and again was the stone camellia, in small bunches or large asymmetrical designs, or used as delicate edging. A good quarter of the attendees were wearing some form of it, by far the largest group. Noticing she was outnumbered by a particular faction set the hairs on Kiyoshi's neck prickling before she tamped down the worry. She was among Fire Nation nobility, not in a back alley about to get jumped by triad hatchet men. The flower must have had a link to the departed Chedu as she'd seen in the gallery, and the partygoers wore it out of respect. Servants passed by them as smoothly as clouds, offering morsels of food so spiced that the drifting aromas nearly made Kyoshi sneeze. There were skewers of hippo oxtail, rolls of ocean kumquat, 
and slivers of fish of all sorts, from waters near the islands and from rivers so far away they would have had to make the journey here packed in ice. Kiyoshi declined to eat out of nerves. This was how much she'd changed since becoming the Avatar, refusing food. Younger Kiyoshi would have punched her in the nose for that. Rangi watched a few of the platters go by. That's odd. That's odd was now their official motto for the trip. What is it? Kiyoshi asked. There's no stock nose mushrooms. They're a traditional festival of sito food. The mushrooms grow on overcrowded ears of grain, so they're symbolic of a good harvest. I don't see them anywhere. So? Rangi turned to her with the utmost gravity. Kyoshi, this is the royal palace. If we don't have them, no one in the country has them. This is not an auspicious sign for the holiday. The slight pout on her lips that she was doing her best to fight was adorable. Rangi always tried so hard to hide her foibles, as if liking certain things was unprofessional. Knowing that she had a weakness for a particular snack made Kiyoshi want to squeeze her tight. The next time the two of them visited Yokoya, she'd ask the remaining kitchen staff to find some stock noses and cook them however they did in the Fire Nation. Avatar! came a squawk from somewhere around Kiyoshi's belly. She looked down to see Lu Beifong delivering a curt bow. Despite age confining him to a seat on the other side of the crowd during the concert, it appeared in front of her like he'd stolen the secrets of dust-stepping from the flying opera company. The old man must have wanted a transaction. Only business could make him so positively spry. Master Beifong, Kyoshi said. She nodded slightly. Lu was as high up in the Earth Kingdom hierarchy as a person could get without being a king. So this encounter was probably within the rules of decorum. It's good to see you. How are your grandchildren? A large flying boar symbol had been embroidered onto Lu's robe in an attempt to conform to Fire Nation clan customs, but it fell short in tastefulness. With his bony fingers, Lou picked a loose silk thread off the sewn animal and scowled. Somewhere, a tailor was going to lose their job. Numerous and unpromising, he said, flicking the thread to the ground. What I wouldn't give for a talented leader to be born into my family, or a child with a good head for numbers. I would take a halfway decent earthbender at this point. With the way things are going, the Beifong name threatens to slide into obscurity. Would that children were fit to their parents' needs, Kiyoshi said, the words coming out like ground glass through her teeth. Lu and the other sages only knew that she was an orphan and were content to leave it there. The tap of Rangi's toe against the back of her foot let Kiyoshi know that she was likely turning red and betraying her anger. This is why I need the makeup, she thought. Yes, well put, Lou said. He gestured to another Earth Kingdom man by his side. This person was younger, in his forties, and had obviously tried to coordinate his green and yellow outfit to complement Lou's. 
This is Governor Xing of Jintong Province. Lu's hanger-on from the Earth Kingdom didn't bother with niceties. He pushed closer impatiently, nearly jostling a waiter trying to serve small vials of plum wine. Avatar, I have a grievance. The misinformation you sowed among my people during your last visit to my lens has damaged the workings of law and order. Kiyoshi picked up the way Lu's eyes flashed at her. Good leaders do not stir the pot. They do not cause disruptions. The old sage valued stability above all else, and several of Kiyoshi's recent escapades in the Earth Kingdom did not fit his definition of conduct becoming of an avatar. Kiyoshi sorted through her mental notes. Jintong province was close to Siwong, a dusty scrubland that was relatively unproductive and difficult to grow crops on but that didn't mean someone couldn't try to exploit it. Ah, she said. Governor Xing, now I remember. You were buying land at distressed prices from peasants who couldn't till their fields because of Daofei raids, forcing them to later work for you as indentured laborers on the farms that used to be theirs. The exactness of her terms surprised the older men. She wasn't supposed to say such unpleasant facts out loud in polite company. She was supposed to allude to them, dance around the matter, peck at it like a small feeding bird. Hmm, Lou muttered. That's a tad different from the way you phrased it to me, Xing. You told me you were paying good money to keep your lands free of bandits. I took care of the Daofei in the area, Kyoshi said. And once I finished, I told the farmers that I considered ownership of the land reverted back to the state it was in before the Emerald Claws first set foot in Jintong. I undid the problem and its aftershocks, both. I had binding contracts on those lands, Shing said. I purchased them legally. I have the documentation. Kyoshi thought for a moment. Here was where an avatar of old, skilled in diplomacy like Sito and Yang Chen might offer him something in return to soothe tempers and save face. But she couldn't bring herself to try to imagine fitting compensation. Why exactly did Xing, a powerful man, deserve to exploit a catastrophe and become richer at the expense of his citizens? She found the words marching forth from her lips with ease. Well, Governor, if you value business terms so much, I can send you a bill for pacifying your province. Given the results, my cost would be the equivalent of supplies and wages for a medium-sized army. I'd need the payment immediately in a lump sum. Behind her, Kiyoshi heard the nose-snort of Rongi trying desperately not to laugh. Shing looked like he needed to suck on a wood frog. These are the tactics of an urban racketeer! he shrieked. When they said you were a criminal, I didn't believe the rumors at first, but clearly, shing, Lou snapped. Mind how you speak to the Avatar. We are not in our homeland. The governor of Jintong wilted at Lou's rebuke. There was an uncomfortable pause. The nearby crowd watched with barely hidden glee as the noisy Earth Kingdom folk had it out with each other. Lou sighed and shook his head. His hunch seemed to have taken on a steeper angle. 
I'm afraid I must retire early from the festivities, he said. Old bones and whatnot, it was a delight, everyone. He shuffled back toward the garden entrance of the palace. Shing followed a few steps behind, somehow looking much worse for wear than the elderly man. Kiyoshi could easily see Lu cutting Shing loose from the Beifong circle of influence after tonight, not out of any moral obligation, but for being a bad investment who'd gotten on the Avatar's wrong side and embarrassed the Earth Kingdom outside its borders. She might have just ended the man's entire career. Once they were alone again, Rangi cleared her throat and leaned in. As much as I love watching you verbally set people on fire, be a little more careful. That same conversation between two fire nationals could have ended with an Agni Kai. Kyoshi knew she wasn't kidding. The Flying Opera Company used to tease Rangi mercilessly about honor and other Fire Nation values back in the isolated depths of the Earth Kingdom. But that was when she was the only firebender for hundreds of miles around. Here, Kyoshi and Shing were the odd ones out. The stifling atmosphere made it easy to believe that no interaction was too small to have meaning. This isn't a game, Rangi reminded her. This is a garden party. There are stakes. I'll do better next time, Kyoshi said. Good, Rangi mustered herself. Because here comes my mother. The Headmistress Heiran's arrival was preceded by a hush through the nearby crowd. Lower-ranked nobles parted to let the woman who'd taught their daughters pass through. Some of them gave her crisp salutes, a reminder Rangi's mother had also been a high-ranking military commander at one point. She returned the gestures with glances and nods. Kiyoshi swallowed hard. Even without the complications of her early avatarhood, this was a reunion with someone designed from the ground up to pass judgment and call the unworthy from her presence. Heiran approached slowly, using a cane to assist her steps. She hadn't bothered with dressing in finery. The stark parade uniform she wore enhanced the deliberateness of her movements. Her once solid black hair was mingled with strands that had turned gray and wiry. She looked older. That meant finally looking like Rangi's mother, without a doubt, instead of her twin. The blaze in her eyes was still there, as clear and piercing as ever. Kyoshi bowed, if only to escape the woman's gaze for a moment. I am grateful to see you in better health, headmistress, she said. And a little surprised, it seems, Heiran said. Kiyoshi tensed up. She'd made the wrong face. Again, this was why she needed her makeup, to hide the nuances of expressions she couldn't control. Heiran brushed her own comment away. You don't have to pretend. I can't believe I'm up and about either. They're miracle workers, water tribe healers. She sighed unhappily. I can barely firebend right now, though. 
It's like being a child again, having to learn the basics and build my strength back up. A fitting punishment, given what I put Yun and you through. Kyoshi winced. A firebending teacher of Hadon's caliber losing her abilities felt like a tragic loss for the whole world. I still haven't discovered who was responsible for this crime, Kyoshi said. In her opinion, the official inspectors had dropped the case prematurely. They'd found no records or messages as to why so many influential members of the Earth Kingdom had gathered in Yokoya that day. But that was suspicious in itself. But I swear, I won't let it drop. Pain coursed through Heidon's face. Kiyoshi. It was him. It was Jinju. It took a while for the dam to give way. Kiyoshi's old hatred, long stilled, came rushing over the banks once more. She turned to Rongi, who gave her a grim nod. The victims in Yokoya were his enemies come to oust him as the Avatar's master, Adon said. Her voice was strained and hoarse. He caught me and himself in the attempt. Whether it was out of sloppiness or to throw off suspicion, we'll never know. Kyoshi closed her eyes and gripped the handle of one of her fans. It took so long for the threads of mistakes and monstrous deeds to stop weaving into the future, to just tie themselves off and end. Maybe they never ended. A different pattern hung out of reach. One where Kelsong was alive, Hadon had never been poisoned, and Lek was still sulking in a run-down tea house in Chameleon Bay, longing for a bison. I'm sorry, Kiyoshi said. If I had been able to create a flame when you tested me. Remembering her past failure in front of Hadon hurt all the more, considering how much Kiyoshi enjoyed the act of firebending these days. The flames came easily now when she danced with Rongi's native element, and yet she had been so lacking back then. Kiyoshi thought often about that little ball of tinder she had failed to set alight. Sometimes it drove her to tears. What could have been saved but for her weakness? I'm sorry, she repeated. Hadon laughed, a short, harsh bark. You're sorry. You're apologizing to me. The indomitable former commander began to shudder. She pressed her fingers to her eyes so hard that it looked like she was trying to gouge them out. Rongi was at her side in an instant, steadying her. The bystanders were as surprised as Kiyoshi at the show of emotions. But Hadon collected herself before she shed any tears. Kiyoshi had a feeling this was the furthest extent of the woman's vulnerability. Kiyoshi, I am the one who needs to apologize, Hadon declared with nary a crack in her voice. I am so sorry for what I did to you, and for what I allowed Jenju to do to you and Yun. I could have put a stop to what was happening. I could have seen things clearly if I'd wanted to see them. 
I can never make this right. Kyoshi looked at Rongi's hand on her mother's elbow. It was a small gesture, the slightest touch, but it made Kiyoshi think of the way she had wrapped her arms around Kelsong once as he wept on an iceberg over his mistakes. It was hard to tell, given their stern, unyielding expressions. But here was a woman, racked by guilt, being comforted and supported by her loving daughter. Your recovery is a good start, Kiyoshi said. Haydon looked at her, puzzled. Toward paying your debt to me, Kiyoshi clarified. What I demand from you, headmistress, is your continued good health. I'll accept no less than what I'm owed. Kiyoshi, this isn't the time for jokes. She's not joking, mother. Rangi's smile overflowed with love for them both. She's simply like that. Now swallow your pride and accept the decree of the Avatar. Haydon laughed again, though there was no gladness in the sound. She patted her daughter's hand. I'm all right. Go find Sifu Atuat. I need a moment alone with Kiyoshi. Rangi clipped her heels together and left to retrieve whoever this Atuat person was. Haydon gathered herself and stared down Kiyoshi. How she managed to do that from her lower height was a mystery. Kiyoshi, I want you to know something, she said. Haydon's voice lost what was left of its earlier emotion and turned into a cold, unflinching whisper, simply measuring and reporting the dimensions of the truth. I would kill him. I would kill him for what he did to you and Kelsong and Yoon and my daughter. I want you to know that, Kyoshi. I want you to believe it. If he were here right now, I would kill Jenju in front of this entire crowd. The space between Kyoshi and Haydon changed like steel being quenched, hardening into an ancient and well-understood design. Her true reconciliation with Rangi's mother lay here, not in tearful public apologies. So would I, Kiyoshi said. Good girl. Haydon glanced in the direction her daughter had gone. Rangi, ultimately she is kind. No amount of drilling or hardship will ever change that about her. Which means... There are places she will never go, places that are barred to her. You may have to visit them on her behalf, to protect her and others. Kyoshi still struggled with the actions she took as the Avatar in defense of the world's peace and balance. But protecting Rongi was a matter that turned her into a different being, small and rat-like and vicious enough to live inside a thin shadow. She chose her words carefully to hate on, filling in the limits she was sure of. I know exactly what to do with anyone who would hurt your daughter. Hadon's lips flattened into a line. Kiyoshi knew that this was as close to a grin of outright approval as the woman ever gave. 
they gazed at each other in mutual accord. The silence was broken by someone accidentally jostling Kiyoshi's elbow. I couldn't remember if you liked plum wine or sorghum liquor, a short, plump woman in blue robes said to Haydon in a loud, piercing voice. She wielded a glass in each hand, threatening to spill the different colored contents. So I got both. Rangi caught up like she'd been chasing the water tribe woman through the crowd, instead of retrieving her. Kiyoshi, this is Sifu Atuat, she said. Sifu Atuat is the greatest of the northern healers. She personally saw to my mother's recovery. We invited her as our honored guest in thanks. While she's here, she's part of our family. Hadon pushed the proffered glasses away from her face. And I'm still your patient, Atuat. I shouldn't be drinking. The other doctors said it would set back my recovery. The other doctors are cowards, Atuat said. If your innards start failing, I can simply bring you back to life like I did before. She turned to Kiyoshi, acknowledging the avatar for the first time. I'm that skilled, she said solemnly. It was a matter of grave importance that Kiyoshi understand the facts. When the headmistress here arrived at my hospital, she was basically a corpse wrapped in a red shroud. To save her, I picked the pocket of death itself. Kiyoshi had to check that the good doctor wasn't already drunk. She wasn't. She was just that way. You must be one of the finest benders in the world then, regardless of element. Atuat held up a finger while draining one of the glasses she'd brought for Heron. I am, she said once she'd finished it. You know how women in Agna Kala aren't allowed to learn the fighting forms of waterbending? Kyoshi did not know that about the northern water tribe capital. But no matter. Atuat was going to elaborate anyway. I say it's the men who aren't allowed to learn healing from me. Any idiot can punch someone with water. I punch dying people's energy pathways with water such that they live for another handful of decades. Hadon rolled her eyes. Don't flatter her, she said to Kiyoshi with the candor that one could only have when talking about a friend. Atuat is arrogant enough without praise from the Avatar. This was astonishing. The former headmistress of the Royal Academy and the mother of Rongi, calling someone else arrogant. Kiyoshi looked closer at the woman who warranted such a description. Atuat was a little younger than Heidon and resembled Auntie Mui from the neck down. But there was an edge to her face and light blue eyes that Kiyoshi found familiar. Rangi noticed her trying to place it. Sifu Atuat is Master Amak's sister, she explained. So that was it. Kiyoshi's spirits sank. She hadn't been the slightest bit close to the mysterious, disreputable waterbending master. But she'd been there when he died, stabbed through the back by Tagaka the Pirate Queen's waterbending. With so much blood staining her past, maybe Kiyoshi really was as cursed as parts of the Earth Kingdom claimed. I'm very sorry about your brother, she said. Atuat sighed. Thank you. Amak was never going to have a peaceful end, to put it mildly.
but he died protecting people. That's far more honorable than what he was doing before. Heyran looked like she wanted to change the subject of Master Amak. Where's this airbender friend of yours? She asked Kyoshi and Rongi. I should meet him. Kyoshi craned her neck, trying to see where they'd left Jinpa. His crowd was even bigger now, making a circle around him. The monk concentrated as he spread his arms wide, performing an airbending feat passed down through the southern temple that levitated him a few inches off the ground without causing a storm in the vicinity. Kiyoshi had once involuntarily lifted herself with a larger version while in the avatar state, but she couldn't do it under normal circumstances. Jinpa said the party trick had supposedly been invented by Kuruk. It took a lot of skill and had no practical use, so Kiyoshi believed it. As he drifted back to the floor, his audience of nobles clapped for the feat in the exact same manner as they'd done for the riotous music performance. Kiyoshi realized that Junpo was enjoying himself, showing off for others. He hadn't had a real break the entire time he'd been serving her. Would anyone like to try? He said, indicating he could lift a willing volunteer. Me! Atuat roared across the party. She hiked up her skirt so she wouldn't trip and marched off with haste toward the air nomad. Hadon pinched the bridge of her nose, a gesture of frustration she shared with Rongi. I swear it's like having a sister with no impulse control, she muttered. She limped after her own doctor, forgetting to say goodbye to her daughter and the avatar. The shocking lapse of manners from the headmistress warmed Kiyoshi's heart. She liked Sifu Atuat and her effect on Hadon. Rangi appeared to share the sentiment. Sometimes I think making a friend cured her more than anything else, she said. Does she know about us? Of course, 